Hello everybody, and welcome back to Bond by Numbers. It's been a little while since our last episode, and we're really excited to be here with you today, continuing our three non-Bond series. Today we're going to be looking at Torn Curtain, 1966 thriller by Alfred Hitchcock, starring Paul Newman, Julie Andrews, and a retinue of other men, women, and babies, because there's babies in this film. (laughs) That's right. That's right. (laughs) Well, there's at least one. Well, there's at, at least, least one. one in a cameo appearance of somebody. <laughs> so speaking, we got uh, Scott, uh, Josh here in Ottawa. I'm the BFG. And then we also have on the other side of Ottawa, uh, Jeffrey. Well, now Jeff. we're a lot closer, right, Josh? Mm. Yeah, we are a lot closer, actually. I'm no longer living in my uh, studio basement apartment in mm-hmm. Canada, one of the outlying suburbs of Ottawa. I am now living in central Nepean. Uh, sort of kind of inside the city of Ottawa, but not quite downtown, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. uh, the, the proper city. I was just thinking, yeah. though, Josh, I mean, um, insofar as you're closer to the airport, you're also nearer to me. In and Scott. that's true. Mm-hmm. I'm, for, but really, that's about it. I got everything all set up here, ready to go, and I'm excited to dig in the torn curtain. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, why don't we do that, gentlemen? Why don't we um, sure. why don't we move towards that torn curtain by welcoming everybody once again to the episode and uh, and hoping that you'll you'll enjoy what we've got prepared for you in our review and our discussion on Hitchcock's 1966 film. And as always, we're going to start with our World of Bond feature. So, what's been going on in the world of Bond? Let's find out. Happy belated birthday, July 1st, to Leia Sedu, our mm. Miss Madeline Swan. Yes, one of my favorite Bond girls, one of my absolute mm. favorite Bond ladies. Can't wait to see her in the new one. Yeah. I think she. I think she's a great actress. I've seen her yeah. in, very, in, in several things in both English and French cinema. She acts very well, which is quite a feat, because sometimes mm. I find, you know, foreign actresses, when they go over to English, their quality gets a little different. You know what I mean? Uh, they're used differently, blank. almost. I sorry, when I say, and they're, I mean, and they're also yeah. used differently, exactly. Yeah, I don't 100%. know if that's the right word to use, but I feel like sometimes foreign actor, actors, actresses, when they go to like mainstream, um, like sort of Western cinema, it's a little different. But yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and she's done really, really well. Yes, yeah, definitely, definitely has. Uh, but uh, yeah, so happy birthday to Leia Sedu. Not my favorite Bond girl, just because I think of, of the. I, I think she's fine in the role, but just not. You know, Spectre is just just not a great movie for me. And uh, but I respect Scott's. You know, you know his opinion on that, so that's yeah. perfectly fine. How about the Bond brackets, though? What it's coming down to now? Oh like, my, I know, yeah. four what girls, four ladies left. <laughs> I, ladies. I can't believe yes. Anya Masova is in those finals. I, I don't understand it, but I mean, everyone is, you know has their own opinion, but. Yeah. Well, Anya, Anya is not in it. The final four has just been just been selected, oh. and and Anya oh. Anya is not in it. Pussy Galore did but knock what, out what are, Anya. Oh, Pussy, so Honor Blackman won with a nice judo chop, I'm sure. Uh, so <laughs> shoulder we, throw so that leaves us that leaves a shoulder throw. Yeah, oh, into yeah. the hay. Into uh, the hay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So that um, leaves us with Pussy Galore, Tracy, who just edged old, out, d- just edged d- out d- Ursula right. Andress. Yep. And uh, we've got Camille. She made it through, and so did Vesper. So the next round is going Go to be Vesper, Olga. Vesper versus Pussy Galore and Tracy mm. versus Camille. That was the final four. I'm, I'm going for Olga, man. 
Yeah, Camille. I, oh, yeah. I'm I'm still in it because she was my. She, but you didn't though, Josh. Your bracket chose Tracy. I know, but it's still, I'm going. I'm surprised Olga lasted <laughs> okay, that long. Right, okay. I'm, it's like a dark horse for me. If Tracy go. wins, I'll be I'll be happy too. Well, yeah, because that's the one you actually chose to win it. But the thing is, never underestimate the power of Ava Green. Like she is in a lot of, yes. of intellectual yeah. properties. She's like she's everywhere. Like a lot of people know her from mm-hmm. many things, and mm-hmm. and she, yeah, so she does have that appeal to her. So mm-hmm. she could be a winner. She could be, yeah. And Don, Donnie continues to do really good YouTube updates with that. And uh, he actually just put out a, um, a really interesting episode on quantum of history, which I totally recommend to you guys if you haven't uh, if you haven't already um, checked it out. It's on the kind of um, racial profiling and things of Live and Let Die. It's really, really neat. Oh. Uh, because, of course, his, his show does a lot of historical deep dives into context and things mm-hmm. like that. And uh, it really offers some unique perspectives. And his... Yeah, his his look at it touches on some of the context, of course, that that we looked at too, with the uh, black exploitation and kind of where United Artists were at the time and whatnot, and actors like yeah, Fed Koto and and whatnot. But it's it's really really a good episode. So check out Donnie's work; continues to be top notch. And yeah, four four ladies left. So uh, maybe before we move off that subject, Josh, because you and I are still in it, our brackets are still very much alive. You with Tracy, me with Camille. We should talk to Jeff for just a short moment because his bracket, <laughs> of course, Pam Bouvier all the way is burst. Yeah, she got uh, she got yeah. far. She got further. She got further than many would have thought. Yes. Yes. Jeff, uh, how you feeling? Yeah. Well, I feel betrayed but that's fine because <laughs> um, I mean really if we look at uh, you know I would say for looking at just sort of the quality of the person or you know the, the Bond girl or woman I feel like my choices would have actually done better than they did <laughs> but that's Always, that's just yeah. what I call the, the Paula effect and that's the Paula uh, effect yeah that's yeah yeah, yeah. Speaking of Paula, she gets a good shout out in a. I watched this YouTube uh, reactor. His name is Shan. Likes movies or loves movies. I can't remember what it was exactly, but I follow him because he does really astute breakdowns of the movies that he watches. He's like a movie fans reactor. Like he's not some just like guy either pretending to react to something he hasn't seen before. Like oh, yeah. he really breaks things down. Mm. And what he's doing is he's going through the Bond films from the very beginning. So he's got to Thunderball. And, oh, okay. uh, he, and he gave a shout out to Paula. Basically, he said, oh, she took her cyanide. She's like, she's a good agent. You know, I was like, Paula. So uh, I thought that, that was really cool. But definitely check him out, though. Uh, he, he's really good. <laughs> cool. Yeah. But um, so far, Goldfinger was, was his favorite. Okay. But he yeah. also really, really loved Thunderball. Uh, which is, which you know, that's a divisive film for sure. It is a divisive film, yeah. But uh, I, speaking I of divisive films, though, yes, yeah, that's that's a good segue. But we're not quite ready to hop on that pony, I'm afraid. Um, I want I want to talk for a second about um, my copy recently received of uh, Pete Brooker and Matt Spazier's wonderful book from Taylors with Love, which is uh, oh. a, sur- a survey of kind of sartorial uh, history, really, through the Bond films, and it is like. Uh, Matt's blog and like 
you know, the, the podcast they share. It's it's really, really top, top-notch work. I recommend it not just to Bond fans or to gentlemen who, and, and ladies who are interested in fashion and fashion history, but um, maybe so far at least, I'm only about halfway through it, but I'd also recommend it to people who are, are just generally interested in kind of uh, culture, um, British culture in the 60s during the time of Bond, because there's all sorts of really neat, interesting and architectural points um, regarding, you know, the places in the city and, and kind of... Uh, what the actors were doing and the directors and the sort of the way styles were clashing behind the scenes. And it's a really neat look at, you know, the series that we all love so much through a lens of clothing and not in your sort of um, let me talk to you about, you know, the wool types and all that, all the stuff you would expect from experts, which of course they are in their, in their craft and in their um, content creation, but also interesting you know, to the the every man, the every person reader, and I, I really like it, and I'm delighted I got a copy of it for the um, for the show to review, as we will do later on. But uh, yeah, I, I think I think there's um, a lot in there for readers. So if you haven't already checked out uh, their podcast, and I know most listeners probably will, if you're listening to us, there's a good chance you've uh, you've already listened to to Pete and Matt on from Taylor's with love but their book is is fantastic so and and very very reasonably priced so go get yourself a copy of it and uh, join the club of good reading it also gives you the opportunity to play jeff and i alive when it comes to trivia as well so yeah not that anybody ever wants to or winner has winner done chicken dinner yeah <laughs> oh, yeah right <laughs> yeah um the other thing I wanted to do, guys, before we move off this uh, this world of Bond, is just give a shout out to um, the Double O Files, and specifically Don Zederman, who continues to do some really fun and enthusiastic work over there on his show. Um, you know, Don Don's done some fantastic stuff. Last year, he did the uh, 100 Days of Bond trivia using the Trivial Pursuit kind of interview style stuff, which was so cool to listen to others in the community sort of take you know, take chances at uh, answering questions. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the third time now, he's put together Double O FM, um, you know, a mock radio station of requests and sort of letters in like the Casey Kasem type stuff. <laughs> you great. Know? And it's all Bond music, but it's not just like, let me play you all the soundtracks. It's like peripheral mm. music and suggest- yeah. uh, suggestions from fans and, you know, check out this and would you play that? And he's got his own little commercial breaks in there. It's really, really good. I've uh, I've posted cool. it to our socials and our story on Instagram, but uh, yeah, big shout out to Don for all the good work he continues to do at the Double O Files. Just one of many great podcasters and, and creators out there. Yeah. But now, guys, I think with, with that said, it's, it's time to saturate ourselves in ourselves because that's what we're best at here at Bomb by Numbers. Yeah. Does that mean we got to change Obviously. our pants afterwards? <laughs> you might, but I don't have to. <laughs> well, you have a diaper. I He's not I- wearing pants. <laughs> <laughs> Joke's on you. <laughs> yeah. So, Torn Curtain, yeah, this was my selection for the um, the Three Non-Bonds Festival, which we do every year, and by every I mean two. Uh, and this was, you know, a selection, guys, that when I made it, I knew I was choosing a film that was contentious, choosing a film that was not as celebrated as others in Hitchcock's oeuvre, and also mm-hmm. choosing a film that I myself, when first I saw it, wasn't really enthused by. 
However, on the back of Jeff's wonderful recommendation for the Quiller Memorandum and how much I enjoyed that chat, I thought, let's stay with that same sort of feel. Let's get Hitchcock into a Bond conversation. Let's see if we can at least have a chat about a movie that might inspire some good conversation and uh, some ideas. So that's really where this came from. But I I was kind of interesting to go back and and restudy this one. Um, What about your first impressions with this? Well, I was going to say, from what you just mentioned there, you definitely checked off all the boxes. If you were trying to get into something similar to what I chose, um, but to sort of have your own sort of personal flair on what you're looking for in a film, I think you did perfect because mm-hmm. it came out technically the same year. Uh, it, right, you know, yeah. There is espionage with it. It does have some uh, you know big actors, also not super, super well-known. Um and so, uh, yeah, I mean, it, and plus, none of us are really super. Oh, I mean, I know that you're a Hitchcock, you know, uh, pro, dude. But Hitchcock for all of us, uh, it, it's uh, you know, it's one that we're not all super familiar with, and so that's it's a nice, it's nice for all of us kind of to discover it. And uh, again, it, it does check off all the boxes of what we're looking for, uh, and it, it it and it's definitely in the same vein as Bond films, and it's at the time of Bond, so it's not like it's like a new film. Mm-hmm. It That's would right. be, yeah. and when you read reviews about it, they definitely talk about um, you know the height of, of of spy movies at the time. So it, mm-hmm. it it definitely it's it's a very good it's a very good pick for a film, and, and yeah, we're definitely going to have some chats because it is. Uh, it's a, it's an interesting film. <laughs> it is indeed. Yeah. It's, it's definitely it's contentious. It's uh, contentious. worth debating, worth debating, mm-hmm. discussing. Absolutely. Um, I did not dislike the film. I enjoyed it immensely. Uh, on a formative technical level, I think it has many flaws, but I did enjoy it. And um, as a historian, as a personal, as a amateur historian, I should correct myself. I I found uh, the content uh, riveting in that fashion. So mm-hmm. it was very cool to see. Uh, the portrayal of the Iron Curtain, as you would kind of see in movies like made nowadays, for example, on display at this time as well. Because I know, for example, that in the Bond films, the broccoli seemed to shy away from using Smirsch or the Russians. Uh, they, yeah. they, they blamed it all on Spectre the majority mm-hmm. of the time. Mm-hmm. But the Kitchcock and, and uh, you know, uh, Hall and Waterhouse, they, they just basically seemed to go right for the Cold War cut and dry east versus west in this movie mm-hmm. although i will point out that they use a kind of a a fictional organization uh that's executing this operation as opposed to basically saying it's the cia or or something or something of that like yeah yeah and ha- you so know that could be a bit of a safety net a bit but anyway I yeah. can't believe this is his fiftieth film. That's great. yeah, I know. Yeah, because know. he must because I know that he did very early films like in the early twenties, which means he would have yeah. so well, twenty one, twenty two, twenty three. Yeah, young man. So he would only be twenty three or twenty four if you do the math. Just <laughs> so, just yeah. about our, I can't our age picture now. Hitchcock as a young man. Oh, yeah, it's just kind of weird to think about. It's like Winston Churchill as a young man. I just can't picture it. Yeah, no. Mm-hmm. I just picture him at like if he's twenty five, he's still gonna have gray hair and bald. But it, <laughs> it could happen. But who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, when he did this film, he was sixty, sixty seven, sixty seven. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so for sure. Um, 
about the same time I made my decision to, to, to select this film, I don't have the exact date, obviously, um, the wonderful Calvin Dyson, a huge figure within the Bond community, uh, he he did a Torrent Curtain review, just posted it on YouTube about a month ago. Now, I did oh, not yeah. look at it. When I discovered that, I'm like, oh, shit. Like, shit, but snap at the same time. Yeah, so I, I didn't want to see what Calvin's thoughts were about it, but I think he went about it, um, at least from the tag of the video, talking about it as like, you know, Hitchcock's Bond film type thing. And I know we're not certainly going to do that, but um, after after we have our chat here today, I'm, I'm going to check that out and see see what uh, Calvin was thinking of Torn Curtain. I think it's quite funny that we both yeah. been on the same wavelength mm-hmm. at a similar time. Nice. Kelvin's great. I, I love his videos. Uh, he, he does a great job editing them. So shout out to mm-hmm. him. Like he's one, in, one of the best Bond fans on YouTube, in my opinion. Uh, oh, absolutely. Next yeah. to, of course, to uh, Bond on Vinyl, of course. Um, but, Who will uh, be with us soon. Yeah, he's coming back in a couple of episodes. He'll be with us very time. soon. Yeah, mm-hmm. looking forward to that. Uh, taking on uh, one of the different uh, Bond scores. Yeah. Not a, a famous Bond score, but definitely an interesting one with a lot of history behind it and evolution or development, you know, from the first attempt by that composer. So that will be a good discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, what was I also going to say? Yeah, and I also love how Dyson is giving a real rundown on the Mission Impossible films. Like, he seems to agree with me that uh, Ghost Protocol and Onwards is really the re- the, revi- the, revivica- the revivication of that franchise. So that's really neat. Mm-hmm. Well, since our last year of do- Josh, you selected Mission Impossible for our first non Bond series, mm. and I have not yet seen another one. <laughs> you only really they're need good, to watch man. four, five, and six, really, in my opinion. They're, I don't they're doubt they're good. good. I know you both kind of lambasted yeah. me at the time for not having seen any of the more yeah. current ones. That's okay. Um, but I still Rogue live in a cool room. That Spectre should have been. We all, we all have our vices. <laughs> we all have oh, our vices. Yeah. My vice is... Like Rita Coolidge, either or. That's not a vice. That's that's a virtue, a pleasure. It's. Uh, Did Marcus Aurelius include that in, in his uh, list of virtues, I wonder? I think it was number 14, <laughs> I think. 14. Uh, Virginia. Did he also Most mention likely. Rita Coolidge? Yeah. That's why Commodus killed him in Gladiator, was because of the, of the Rita He's Coolidge. He's like, I That's hate why. this grocery store music. I'm going to stab you to death. Stop playing it. Yeah. I've taken over your empire, Dad. Uh, and why not? Huh? Why not? Because everything went well after that, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> right, guys. We're, we're getting off our what track we do here. in life echoes in eternity. Let's, let's, we totally uh, are. Yep. Let's pull the torn curtain away. Hmm. All right, guys. So in, t- in terms of uh, the critical reception of Torn Curtain, we'll talk about the plot and we'll uh, have start a discussion proper in just a few moments. But when it was released, the critics were lukewarm to this film. Um, I-, I can cite a couple of them, you know. I've got a, a good one here by Richard Schickel in Life magazine. Um, and I've also got one by our friend Bosley Crowther in the New York Times and others of the time. Yeah, others of the time were quite lukewarm with it, um, commenting that, you know, technically there's there's a lot of gifts in here to offer an audience, but in terms of story and in terms of what appeared to be a lot of pressure from the studio, Hitchcock just wasn't firing on all cylinders. Now, I think we today have to look back and see that he was becoming an old man and maybe his energies and creativities were not quite there. But as we'll come to discuss, I think even a bad Hitchcock film, I mean, I'm not showing my cards too too much or too early, but you know, perhaps even, even a lesser Hitchcock film can be better than a lot of other films. So I, I don't know if, if oh, reading the reviews is important. Why don't we just point our listeners in the direction of some of those reviews that you can get online 
Um, I would say Cole's though, it, Cole's, the Coles notes, absolutely. So I've, I've mentioned those two, but there are a couple of more modern reviews I'd like to call out as well that I came across. One by JP Roscoe for uh, Basement Rejects, which is quite a nice, succinct, good sort of review. And another one by Brian Fairbanks on his website, I Saw That Movie Too. Both of those writers um, do a good job, I think, of capturing what a modern viewer would think of the film, which is that parts of it look dated, but there's still that blueprint of Hitchcock there, you know? And I mean, five or six reviews I looked at, they all sort of say the same thing, whether from the time of release in the 60s or more more today. A good film, but it just doesn't fire on all cylinders. And technically, there's a lot more to talk about than perhaps there is to celebrate, you know, from an audience point of view. Well, lots of issues with the production, for example, mm-hmm. like you have like uh, Brian Moore's script being kind of rejected by Hitchcock despite keeping two key scenes in the film like the farmhouse for example Mm -hmm. Uh, then you have the departure of Bernard Herrmann right and then Addison coming on the guy who scored the murder she wrote theme of all things Uh, although I do like his bridge too far theme and I actually like his main theme for torn curtain oh yeah but the rest of the score to me really feel it it dates the movie like back 10 years in my opinion Mm -hmm. uh well, that is one feature of the production we can talk about. I've got some info on the scores yeah, if yeah. and when you want to reveal that. Um, yeah. But you said a few moments ago, Josh, I mean, maybe as a starting point, that this is Hitchcock's 50th film, which in and of itself, I think, is really quite remarkable. Yeah. 50th I film mean, in 1966. So, you I know, know, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's I mean, doing 50 feature-length films um, any time, like even up to today is impressive, but when you're basically like you know, uh, a pioneer of film, that's even more impressive. <laughs> In my opinion, and he's not—he's not just a pioneer of film, but he's a pioneer of film whose films are still speaking and still influencing and exactly. still holding up. You know, yes, exactly. So he has survived. He survived his time, even despite yeah. some controversies with his reputation. Well, as yes, well. It, yes, exactly. I mean. Mm-hmm. But guys, this this was really interesting to me as a guy who reads a lot about Hitchcock and is, you know, I, I don't quite get it. Maybe you can help me with this, right? MCA, M- MCA Universal, um, at least as, as I understand it, Lou Wasserman... Uh, had, Wasserman, yeah. yeah. Wasserman and Hitchcock had always had sort of an understanding and a, a respectful sort of commercial relationship um you know they didn't hang out at each other's homes their kids weren't playing with each other and stuff like that but in conversation right suggestions from one would be taken by the other and that was sort of how the collaboration operated but as i understand it mca started doing less of that and having more second and third level executives kind of dictate to hitchcock the way things had to happen now hitchcock is an auteur I, I could never figure out why, when this kind of pressure started, for example, you need to justify your choice of composer. I want you yeah. to be working with stars. Hitchcock never really had to bow to pressure like that before, in, in at least quite the same way. He had more trust. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering why he didn't buy into his own film company, or at least in part try to co-manage or co-run something to release mm. and to mitigate some of this pressure that he felt from executives at, at MCA. Because this is a film which Hitchcock, in his interviews with the 
uh, Francois Truffaut, you know, he's not terribly proud of this. He, he described it as a film that was filled with compromises. Now, why would a director as popular as, as him, as powerful as him, why would he have to compromise on these points with the studio? So was this like a contractual obligation film? That's not how I read it. I, I, I don't no. get it that way. No. no, I mean, that's the only reason I was He had his like ambitions for the film. Yeah, he did, and yeah. they were never met. Yeah, like he yeah. wanted, for example, Cary Grant. He yeah. wanted Evan-Marie Saint, mm-hmm. although Grant was just retiring, so that wasn't going to happen. Evan-Marie Saint, no, the studio wanted Paul Newman because he was up and coming, and yeah, of course, and two Julie movies, Andrews Mary was, Poppins yeah, exactly. and The Sound of Music. She was the biggest wanted, actress at the time. Yeah, and the, and the problem is, though, is that she had a small window, but they still wanted her, yep. So and, 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 they, and, 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 the, and the, stu- the studios were unwilling to budge. So it's really interesting. Uh, maybe Hitchcock was like a little naive. Maybe mm-hmm. he thought that he still had the control that he had. But then, you know, like the studio was uh, was putting their foot down saying, no, no, we're doing this. We're doing that. At the time, this is 66. The big budget era with Cleopatra, Fall of the Roman Empire, was the final coup de grace. That was really the end of these big productions having control. So maybe the studios wanted to manage the money a bit more in... And, and make money from these films more so than just make pictures, you know? Yeah. It wasn't the, yeah. it, it was a whole change in the direction yeah. of filmmaking, I, I, I personally feel. And it was, it was a transition period because this is leading up to, you know, Bonnie and Clyde and the fall of the Hayes Code and all this sort of stuff, right? So it was, and you, like, you are absolutely right, like, historically. Yeah. Within a year I, I or so, we have, understand yeah, 66, we have Paul Newman and Julie Andrews hiding under a blanket. Yeah. A year later, they would probably be like, you know, you know, so what I'm trying to say is, is that like it's a whole changeover from one uh, type true. of type of filmmaking, one type of uh, code of filmmaking over to a new one. Well, I, I yeah. mean, yeah. And yeah. the other thing is, it does kind of seem like maybe Hitchcock is a bit butthurt here, to be honest with you, mm-hmm. uh, in, in a sense. And, and you're right, Josh. I mean, it, it's it's interesting. In just in the next couple of years, if we even just go like a full calendar year, even just to the end of the decade being like 1969, so much changes with film. I mean, even if you look... Uh, Easy Rider, Bonnie. Well, yeah. Clyde. I mean, it's just it's yeah. amazing, sort of the expression and just sort of the 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 lack or the the difference in censorship in content, um, and all that kind of stuff. It, it's just it's it's insane. I mean, again, that's also a product of the times, uh, but this is also pretty interesting as a film. Just because I, I actually one part I really like is how they portray sort of like the. Um, the fact that, that he's a traitor or, or, or you know, that he's um, pretending to be uh, a traitor. and Tough and, sell for an audience, even yeah. at that time, 100%. And, uh, uh, but yeah. Yeah, um, I agree with you. And and Paul Newman, this is also like, you know, we have Brando in the 50s a, and 60s, yeah. but now Paul Newman is a new line of method actors, Robert mm-hmm. Redford, yeah. getting into eventually Hero and Pacino. And so we're seeing a whole different way of filmmaking by this point as well. And I think Wasserman, being a studio executive, he has to adapt. He has to be on the on the cutting edge. And Hitchcock, despite his technical proficiencies and his brilliant filmmaking, he is still old school in that yeah. fashion. And maybe, just maybe, even though his films were ahead of what the studios were doing at the time when they were released, you know, I think, you know, the suggestion of, of the studios of getting Newman and Andrews wasn't out of, you know, stupidity or ignorance. It was probably a, a, a coup to get them. But Hitchcock just, I don't think, it just wasn't what he wanted, I guess you could say. I know, but 
I, I don't know, man. Like, I, I'm trying to understand the backroom conversations yeah, it's, because it's my, my, my point in any of this, my point in, in what you're saying, and you're, I mean, you are right. You're hitting the historical points quite, quite properly. Mm-hmm. But my, my point is that this is a man who carries perhaps more currency in his name and his reputation, even as an older guy, than most directors. You know, I just don't understand how he couldn't he wasn't allowed to make the film he wanted to make and it doesn't it doesn't make sense that in his negotiations with the studio he would have like i mean multiple sources comment on this sort of rift with um herman the exact same way they say that as here's what hitchcock said he wanted because the studio wanted something poppier and uh, and a little bit more modern they wanted something jazzier you know that's exactly what the studio said that they wanted yeah. hitchcock hitchcock <laughs> said okay that's fine we'll do that why did he say that? I don't fucking understand why he said that. And then when Herman delivered his score, and he agreed <laughs> to do it. He agreed to do it. But between January and March of 67, he wrote the score, as so- or 66. As soon as Hitchcock saw it, he fired him on the spot. Multiple sources say the same thing. It's like there wasn't even a conversation to say, look, man, who I've been working with, creative genius that we've been working oh, with weird. for such a long, long time. Yeah, so weird. Let's see if we can't, can you do this differently? He was just like, no, the studio, you're not giving us what we want. But that's not what Hitchcock wanted. Like, I don't understand no, how the pressure really, was exerted. Really odd. There's a story that we're not seeing here yeah, yet. Yeah, there's got to be. More, there's more to tell this story. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, though, too, like, the, cho- the choosing of the actors, maybe because there's history with Hitchcock and other actors, yeah. blonde actors, for example, that uh-huh. maybe they yeah. wanted to pick someone that, that, that you know, the Hitchcock couldn't touch or or maybe mm-hmm. they were aware of his reputation internally. Yeah, maybe. Could yeah. Be a lot, there, there could be a lot yeah. of stuff behind that, right? Yeah. With Tippi yeah. Hedren, you know, being the big example of that, right? So. Yes, and maybe Possible. maybe there were quiet conversations that, that were had that said, look, we know that the work you've done in the past with A, B, and C hasn't really been on an above board. So we're going to give you what you want, but you're going to do a little more of what we want. So we'll keep each other in business type thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, you're right. I, you're I quite just, right. Yeah. I just yeah. don't understand why they just wouldn't let him go almost with a blank check because you know he can do quality. And even, even though yes. this film... Yep. Even though this film is not like, you know, it's not one of his best films, um, it's uh-huh. still, yeah, it's still like, it's not a piece of crap. But no, the, no, the no. fact is, the, the fact is, is like, why don't you give the man who literally changed cinema and is a trailblazer and, and everyone respects him? He's the biggest director of the time. And one of the biggest, and even now, if we're, we're talking about this 55 years later, yeah, of, of all time <laughs> and uh-huh. why can't you just throw him a bone and just let him do his thing you know it's like i, I hear you bob man. dylan yeah. to not play the harmonica or mm-hmm. like to mm-hmm. comb his hair and 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 to tune his guitar in a different tune mm-hmm. when he goes and plays a concert no so why do I you think, have to why do you have to pigeonhole hitchcock yeah but and i, I think don't know. what josh but, is saying has a lot of merit and the more i think about it the more that particularly reflecting on our you know the me too culture and this you know the the eventual and necessary uh, publication and the of all this sort of weinstein stuff like the era that we're now living in which is so you know so much better i think josh what you're saying is is probably very very possible that there were hush hush conversations about what was really yeah. going it, on we that's the only you, you looked at them sense. yeah that's the only thing that makes sense isn't it so i think so, um, well yeah. another possibility could be you mentioned there's more studio execs beside behind wasserman getting involved in the production you know we're dealing with possibly you know like i'm not sure of the history but did universe because universal started out as universal studios right I mean, so what I'm wondering is, is that maybe they took on like 
uh, they it grew as a company, and then the, the shareholders and executives got their say by this time in the '66, and they're only looking to make profit. And after, as I said, the fall of the big budget productions, they still want to make money. And Hollywood was scared that they're yeah. going to lose the old ways. And this particular company, and, and Universal, for example, and they decided, you know, they want to control, they want to metal, metal and metal to make sure they put out the optimum product that they want to make money from. Well, that's what Very it seems possible. like. Because you're just getting like, the two biggest stars. Uh, yeah. Be damned the chemistry. Just put them in the film and do it. It's going to make yeah. us money. We don't, and it's like we don't care about the final product. Here, this is what you get. You know, yeah. here's, uh, and, you know, it's like we can give you a canvas and all the best paints and brushes money can buy, but we're going to give you, uh, you know, we're going to give you a little cahier and a number two pencil, mm-hmm. and that's what you're going to yeah. get. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, now, I think it's yeah. Paul Newman. He, uh, we, as we mentioned, he's a method actor. Yeah. Uh, he was very frustrated with yeah. like the lack, what he perceived as a lack of character motivation yeah. for his role. And he told Hitchcock that, and he said, I want motivation. And famously, <laughs> Hitchcock told, told Newman, he said, your motivation is your paycheck. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Newman was weird. a rising star at this time. I imagine he could have clout to go to Wasserman, go to the studios, even though it seems that they're portraying Newman in a humble fashion saying, oh, I wanted to work with Hitch. I think we could have got along. But behind the scenes, maybe Newman said, like, put a leash on this guy or, you know, restrain him, you know, or, or something like that. It's very possible. Right. Yeah. But who knows? There must be other conversations. We just don't know about because there's so mm-hmm. many things that just don't add up. Yeah. Uh, for this. And, and speaking of the new Hollywood, a very young Steven Spielberg snuck on yeah. the set of this stage. That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's cool. He was kicked out, apparently. Well, he came back. <laughs> yeah. A few years later. Well, look. Uh, y- yes, he did. Do we need to talk then too much more about this fallout with Bernard Herrmann? Uh, Herrmann had I mean, promised Hitchcock at the behest of the studio to deliver a more poppy score without compromise. When it was given to him in March... It uh, it didn't happen, so Hitchcock fired him on the spot. Mm. He brought in John Addison, who had recently had some success with the Academy doing uh, a couple of scores, and and the rest is kind of history. Now, mm. this is an interesting little point we got, Josh, uh, because before you came on, Jeff and I were just talking, and Jeff said, you know, he's just really not fond of the Addison score at all. Um, really not. I've listened to both of them, and I think for the picture that we ultimately have, I prefer the Addison score. I think it, 
I mean, I, I think it, it works a bit more, but I, I love the music You're not that wrong. Bernard Herrmann wrote. I like the music yeah, that he wrote. Yeah, that's the thing. It, yeah. But it, 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 you're right. It does, like, the Addison does work better. I like the Herrmann score more. It I, sounds yeah, like okay. it's more yeah. of an like a darker espionage. Like yeah. what I was expecting the film to be mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. the way I hear the Herman score, mm-hmm. uh, and, and the way the film goes is the way the Addison <laughs> score goes. In yeah. my opinion, I have a slightly different take. I go for it. Totally dig Addison's main theme. Yeah, that's uh, it, it really catches you in the opening. Yeah, it's uh, great. But uh, I would prefer Herman's score overall. But I. I to me, it would have worked better. It would have grounded the picture, I think. Uh, it was less romantic. And yeah, the exactly. picture in the end wasn't did try to, but in a very shallow way. Very shallow. And, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, of course, we'll get into that later on. Yeah. We will. I just thought it was an interesting point, given the discussion also, of the rift with uh, Herman. The song, like the actual song with... Yeah. Uh, and Green I, Years. I still can't. Very weird. Uh, I don't know what that is. I don't, I'm not a fan of that. It's very weird. That's, that's exactly it's, what it is. It just shows up. It's almost like we needed something that we could also pump out as a single from the film. Well, that's what I mean. It's like it's like okay, it's not then you guys Tuesday's have to put in like a little nice fluffy pop song. Put that in there, and they're like, <laughs> yeah. oh, okay, sure. Yeah, it doesn't okay. fit, yeah. but we'll we'll put no. it in there. And unlike yeah, the Quiller exactly. Memorandum, which did a good job of working Barry's music in there, both yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, diegetically yeah. and non-diegetically. Sure. They didn't do anything with that here. They could have worked the song in. Could have had it at the no. bus station, yeah. you know, but they didn't do yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. And that was. I it wonder could why playing, it could have been playing in the in the the little cafe with the the, the countess. Yes, yes, totally. Right. Yeah. I mean, that totally could have just could have, been, yeah. you know, on the on a radio or something, whatever. Should and that would have yeah, justified Hitchcock. Yeah, that would have just, exactly. justified Hitchcock in in terms of Bernard Herrmann's perspective because he would have said, "Well, yeah. they really did want to push for that stuff," but exactly. it's, it's it was so. odd. But also, like two giant egos. Herman yeah. Hitchcock. Wow. They're never going to reconcile, are they? Never going to reconcile after I don't, one. They never the other. And they never did. Yeah. And, and like Hitchcock, basically, for whatever hands that were tied behind his back, 
he stabbed Herman in, in the, he's, yeah. I know it's like a psycho reference, but, uh, <laughs> in, stabbed him in, in the way. front, kind of in the front, in the, side. In, in, in the front, in the side. Is Torn yeah. Curtain a reference to Psycho? Because doesn't he stab through the that curtain? Could, yeah, that's true. Yeah. No, he pulls it No, I guess back. he pulls it away. She, she, okay, but she it's probably, but it's torn though. I'm it pretty is, sure oh, that yeah. curtain gets torn. Yeah, because okay. uh, that's right. Yeah, Marion tears mm-hmm. it as she pulls down, doesn't she? It's all coming the, together. Uh, it all connects. Oh yeah, it, it really oh, is. Yeah. And if you look at the poster art, too, guys, like the poster art has like this stark red background, right, with mm-hmm. the image of a hand holding a knife, mm-hmm. and that's very reminiscent to Norman Bates. Mm-hmm. And the artist uh, who did that, Howard Turnpeen, he illustrated over eighty movie posters: Ooh, uh, cool. The Guns of Navarone, Lawrence of Arabia, oh, Cleopatra, yeah. Doctor Zhivago, oh, yeah. The Sound of Music, uh, just to name a few. But he's mostly known for drawing Native Americans. Oh, wow. But, oh. Uh, yeah. Oh, cool. Pr- pr- pretty cool. What, what was yeah. his name again, cool. Josh? Howard Turnpin. Howard Turnpin. Nice. Yeah. And yeah. you can bet that he knew those connotations were living with the psycho imagery when he did that. Oh, 100%. So, yeah. yeah. You know, Maybe even was even directed. I, if this guy is drawing Native Americans like for, for a living, mm-hmm. like in, you know, like those old Western kind of paintings, mm-hmm. uh, then it's very possible that uh, he might have just been under orders to by the art department or the marketing department to you know convey that those right. kind of ideas right they want to bring Hitchcock uh, they want to bring audiences back to the seats for a Hitchcock movie put the psycho imagery in there uh, then give them a Cold War thriller mm-hmm. I guess you could say put Paul Newman in there everyone loves Paul Newman now uh, put in Julie Andrews everyone loves her <laughs> yeah. you know like yeah. you, it, it's kind of like I can see Lou Washerman's gears you know. Yeah, like it makes sense uh, for a guy who's kind of tone right? dev, but like, just put this in, put this in. It's like, <laughs> yeah. just throw, start throwing ingredients in the soup. It'll work. Yeah. yeah. If That's you simmer right. it long enough. To, yeah. And just to ground things in reality, too, like he Hitchcock did base, like when he came up with the idea of it, which he then brought on to Brian Moore to kind of illustrate, although before he wanted Nabokov, apparently. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But Nabokov said, I don't, I, don't think I, I don't think I could write a spy thriller. Mm-hmm. I guess not as deep. Uh, as he usually goes in, in his writing. Um, yeah, these two guys, I don't know if you heard about this, Jeff. There was a real-life defection in 1951 of British officials Guy Burgess and Donald McLean. Mm-hmm. And McLean's wife uh, went, and, and his children went with him. Uh, but they were kind of like, I guess, uh, bamboozled into going and, and realized what was happening. But they eventually, you know, assimilated, I guess, and, and stayed, stayed with them. Uh, when when they when he was over on the Iron Curtain, this guy McLean. Well, I, so I knew kind of the guy Burgess and the McLean stuff, but I didn't know about like the the family being like you know yeah. sort of bushwhacked and bamboozled into doing that. But that's interesting. Yeah, that it was actually based on something that actually happened. Yeah. It wasn't just sort of like uh, uh, I mean, it's a great idea, anyways. Even if it wasn't based on that's that, right. on actual defection, yeah. But, you know, and when you think exactly. about it as well, like that is such a wonderful opportunity for female agency in a story. Yeah, like tell it yeah, from the lady's absolutely. perspective, uh, and we and we get a first half or a, sorry, a first third that seems to want to do that, <laughs> but yeah, it it never really never really comes no. off. No, and it, so it and, it really and falls flat actress for it too well it wastes yes and i mean we can talk about julie andrews when we get to the acting but um yeah i've I've got a few more notes here buddy on the production if you just want to if if, if i just skim quickly through them and then we'll get on to it Uh, the film cost six million to make hitchcock later described it as i said being filled with compromises um 
Now, I found this interesting. Hitch was keen on following a more Jungian view that saw the world neurotically dissociated and the Iron Curtain as symbolic of that line of division. He wanted Michael ultimately to burn the formula that he caught from Lint, but eventually bowed to commercial pressure to have a more happy traditional ending. And mm. I, I can see that, but it would have been neat to see that the in, in, in expressed in the way Hitchcock maybe originally saw with that sort of more um, neurotic worldview. Um, what else have I got here? Uh, let me see. Oh yeah. Hitchcock originally considered setting the film in Poland and many critics Ooh. point to that scatty sort of Polish countess at the end, looking for a visa Ooh. as his nod to that or sort of his, uh, in- okay. intention with that. Uh, and I, I mean, I can see that, you know, it does, it does kind of that make a bit of sense. I would have, I would have liked that. Now, guys, you're going to love this. Okay. Uh, I certainly did. I had a good smile when I came across this, that, um, Hitchcock brought on German production designer Hein Heckbroth to do the job uh, of the Berlin stuff. He worked, and I'm oh, sorry, throughout the film, he worked earlier on uh, Powell and Pressburger film 1948, The Red Shoes, for which he won an Academy Award. And Heckroth also did costumes two years before that, in 46, for Powell and Pressburger's A Matter of Life and Death, which of course featured oh. in my Roger Moore Film Festival. Yeah. And I know, Jeff, you went on and watched yeah. that one. Man, that's a great movie. That's almost like Good science one, fiction. Yeah. I love that movie. I'm, I'm glad really, you enjoyed it. I really, thought it was really, really cool. Enjoy that movie. Yeah, if you're really not, cool. if you're not uh, au fait with what we're talking about, our one of our recent episodes um, on the Bond film festivals, we had a lot of fun putting together. That film comes up, and uh, I'll say no more. Mm. But uh, Roger Moore selected it, didn't he? Yeah, there you go. Mm. Go figure. Um, According, according to Ken Mogg, who wrote the Alfred Hitchcock story, which is a 1999 book, most scenes of Torn Curtain are built on, quote, a stretching of time, deliberately drawn out, sometimes accompanied by actual straining and striving by the characters, end quote. Mm. That's just one critic's view of the stylistic impression of the movie. Now, I mean, I can attest to this in some places, but I certainly don't see that auteur vision of stretching time happening throughout the film. Do you guys? I mean, just as a preface, well, like throughout the think movie? Think of the situation, I think there's a stretching of time that occurs that creates, I think, a really good uh, element of suspense is for, you have the murder of Gromick at the farmhouse. Uh-huh. And then, of course, uh, the farmer and then the farmer's wife, of course, burying the mor- him, his body and the motorcycle. Mm-hmm. And then you have the motorcycle being excavated by yeah. Stasi. Yep. And then that creates a time bomb. Uh, exactly. A time bomb. It's like a Very countdown. Hitchcockian mm-hmm. time bomb, if you think about it. Uh, it propels the third act. Yeah. Exactly. Compels the third act. Yep. Despite, you know, it, it, yeah, exactly. It compels the third it, act. It, it creates the suspense because it, the audience knows it's like a matter of time, right? It's like watching like uh, um Oh my goodness! The um, sand's in an hourglass. Basically, you're like, okay, so they're already they have the they have you know they have the scent because you know uh, Gromick is missing, so they're gonna they're gonna go through you know they're gonna go through gonna all the yep. they're gonna find them. So and, and that's and that was good. I mean, at least if you go from there, at least you're you're you know there's a nice sort of uh, beginning of. Um, uh, sort of the time and 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 suspense, and so it, it, that at least gives the audience something to be like, oh, here we go. Uh, but mm-hmm. it eventually kind of falls flat. <laughs> well, it it does, but I, I'm I'm not quite sure that the those ticking time bombs are kind of. Uh, 
a blueprint of the film. Like I, what the, what this guy no, is no. saying is that that that's what defines this movie is a stretching out of time. I see that I see that in certain sequences, but I can't I can't say that that's what the film's about. Like you can say Vertigo is about a thing. It's about a motif. <laughs> yeah. It's about a theme. Like yeah, yeah. I don't well, like yeah, I don't the first that. and second act could play over a seri- a long period of time. It's not until when yeah. they find the motorcycle yeah. when the third act kicks into gear. So I mean, they could have had anything going on in the first two acts mm-hmm. up to that point, and uh, time would not be stretched joke? out. Yeah, <laughs> it's not like like <laughs> is he trying to say it's sort of like you know Dunkirk, where if you don't oh, remember yeah. Christopher Nolan's yeah, built yeah. Dunkirk, where they show three different storylines, but they're all happening congruently. So, well, he he could be, but the book was written twenty years before that film. <laughs> well, the other thing with Dunkirk is you have that sort of like tick tick tick, where it sounds like it's actually a like a. Real time. That's true. (laughs) Which actually helps, which is funny because when you hear that, your heart is like, it it goes with the beat. You know, it's like when they had, uh, when Timothy Leary made those records about to take, he made a record. So when you take acid, uh, and it's almost considered like hip hop or techno because it would be like beats per minute. And if you listen to it, it, your heart rate goes with the beat and it makes you higher. Because it would, anyways. Wow. My my point is, is that Uh uh with Dunkirk, and, and so you have the, that sort of ticking. It, it really sort of made, especially if, even if you look at the trailer, it got you going because it was just that tick. And you're like, what is that? There's no music. It was just that tick. So mm-hmm. it, it gave the audience like it was suspense. And it was like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Um, I bet Hitchcock was an inspiration for Nolan. Oh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. Hitchcock's inspired everybody, hasn't for, he? I think he's in one way. I think so. Because he's done whether, so whether they know styles of film. That sequence in the farmhouse, and we'll get into that, I'm sure. But like that reminds me of so many scenes I've seen. Like I, that is so modern in terms of filmmaking. Like remember the scene in The Sopranos where Tony is is killing Ralphie in the kitchen. That whole struggle that they have. Like it's just those elements that just come out of the blue, and there's the music turns off. Yeah, just like just a life and death kind of Mm -hmm. struggle. You know, like I just feel that it's moments like that. You know, that uh, Hitchcock was such a paragon of filmmaking, mm-hmm. such a visionary that the, the the great TV dramas that we see today in the golden age of television, as it's mm-hmm. called, I think really pull pull from that. And, that, and when again, he wanted to be, he was a great realist too, wasn't he? And that scene's an excellent example yeah. of that, how he wanted to stretch it out to make it realistic, to convey, as he says to Truffaut, I think, Josh, you can correct me on that, but he wanted to convey the idea that to kill a man, to kill a person takes a lot of time, almost in an anti-Bond yeah. way. He was exactly. looking to de-romanticize the idea of it and and have to involve household items. You have to involve more of the one people, yeah. more than one person. And I, th- I can see that that at work for sure. Uh, yeah, I think uh, uh, if I'm if I'm picking up what you're putting down uh, again with what they were saying about that is they also wanted to make it not so much as simple like in a lot of other espionage films of the time, like Bond films and mm. Quiller or um, the the that other series I can't remember with um, Michael Caine. Uh, is that they yeah, wanted to make it, it's more sloppy, it's more realistic. Like you know, it starts off with her throwing like a, a I think it was a beer stein at him, and he's all wet. And soup she, was a soup you know, kettle, they, I think. Oh, su- soup I'm kettle. sorry, a soup. Okay, that makes more sense. Um, but uh, and then yeah, just you know, she, she in the struggle with hip, uh, you know, Newman trying to hold him back, and he's having a hard time. Yeah. And then she stabs him, and the knife breaks off. It's just, it was just <laughs> yeah. a complete mess. But you know, yeah. that's what I liked about that's it. It wasn't just killing like killing can be like, yeah. You know, so you know, it wasn't just like uh, a, a, not that I have anything against a born identity, but it wasn't just like 
you know, karate chop, I'm going to kill you. And boom, it's done. Like, you know, everyone is a black belt martial arts. It's just like... And Quantum of Solace like a, is a nice answer to that, too, because a lot of the violence in that yep. is tough and bloody and sweaty. Yeah, and, and just group. sort of just, environmental, yeah. like you just use whatever you got around Pick you. Pick that up, there it is. Or Cracked. Casino Royale. The, the Casino Royale, that fight in the... Um, uh, that fight sequence at the beginning in the ba- in the uh, in the washroom, you know that cross oh, yeah. between him, yeah, you know when he when he when he basically smashes the guy's head into the, uh, the sink sink mm-hmm. yeah sink yeah that's yeah, another exactly. example yeah. yeah I was also going to say yeah so I mentioned the Sopranos I'm just going to think of also some scenes in the Americans Breaking yeah. Bad oh yeah that just stand out to me you know it's just that slow tense build up uh slow burn and then all of a sudden this incredible burst of desperate violence you know and and hitchcock carry as you said scott he really shows the chaos and and uh the mindset and uh the will to kill a human being is not an easy thing it's not it, it, it it is a act it's a threshold that you cross and the audience should feel that yeah and we think of Craig's first killing in Casino Royale too. You know, right. another one of those yeah, messy showing his affairs. First yeah, Made you right. feel it, did he? Uh, yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. Well, guys, look. I mean, we're having our chat about it right now. So why don't we just transition into a plot summary, uh, stroke by stroke? Now, you guys voted me down. Uh, we took a little vote behind the scenes on whether we would do prepared plot summaries or just sort of go through the beats of the film and chat about them as we do, which should hopefully tidy up our scoring section at the end. And you voted for that instead of a, a prepared chat, so that's perfectly fine. I've got all the strokes, and you've agreed on them. So we're going to talk our way through the points of the plot, and hopefully, uh, listeners. Uh, you'll you'll recognize these plot points as we go and um, yeah we welcome you to uh, to share your thoughts with us on our socials as we're going through this and then at the end we'll give you our money penny scoring for torn curtain I, I neglected to mention, gentlemen, that this film did earn seven million approximately at the box so office. It, so it did pull its its its. Uh, yeah, it was positive, and yeah. of the post of the post psycho Hitchcock films, it took in the most money, and uh, that's something, I guess. So I, I read here that the their um, their salaries were seven hundred and fifty. So is that is that together or is that individually they made 750 each i don't know between I didn't see newman that. and uh, i don't know i read that and i was like that's a lot of friggin money in 1966 it said yeah, their yeah. salaries were 750,000 was a big part of the film's 5 million dollar budget like, that's a lot but there's and no way like, julie andrews would be making that much as, as, if he did as well yeah. paul newman would have made more than her just on yeah. the 100% Pay yeah, hey, equity, hundred percent. Yeah, I know. Yeah. 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 Maybe it's combined. Maybe maybe he made like maybe fifty <laughs> and she and made she, three. Yeah. Or no, I'm no, like, that's a lot that. of friggin' money, man. Yeah, yeah. But curious to see like what women actors made at that time. Like you know what did she Julie Andrews make? Time, I think. You know what did uh, Audrey Hepburn make, or what did uh, what, what's her name? Uh, well, we know what we Grace know what Liz Kelly Taylor. Make? Yeah, well, we know what Liz, Liz Taylor. Liz Taylor. Oh yeah, one million for Cleopatra, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And, yeah, a million dollars. Yeah. What was that? Nineteen? Was that sixty-two? Sixty-three. Yeah. You know, I was looking Something at like sixty-three. 63. Oh, there you go. So, yeah. She signed uh, at sixty-two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she signed Sorry, at sixty-two. Pedantic. Yeah. 
No, no, no. That's yeah. that's I, I I want the no. exact. So we both me and Scott have seen the film that that destroyed Hollywood or or, yes. or changed and Hollywood. I think Waterworld and yeah. the documentary and the do- <laughs> the documentary the documentary. Anyway, right. Let let's get yeah. on to this guy. So. Torn Curtain yeah. begins with Michael and Sarah on an East German vessel in bed. Michael Armstrong and Sarah Sherman, the characters played by Paul Newman and Julie Andrews. They're in bed, playful, evading responsibility. Michael gets a wire instructing him to find accommodation in Copenhagen. Sarah's belief is that she's accompanying him at a conference as, her, as his assistant, but he's actually on a secret mission. We know this before she does, and we have to kind of watch her play catch up in the first few stages of the film. So that's our first section to discuss. Anything you want to pull out of that? Um, I was just... Yeah, go, go ahead. Jeff. I was just going to say that uh, the, the first bit of, I think, uh, audience, not confusion per se, but I guess int- intrigue and in, uh, audience intrigue. immersion. I guess, yeah, the first moment of audience intrigue, I think, occurs here because why doesn't he want her to know about the telegram, right? He says, no, this isn't me. But then he goes down to the well, yeah. office and then he uh, sends it, right? It's a bit so odd. So that's kind of, that's sort of the beginning of, of I guess, of, I, of the of the, of the the A plot, I guess you could say. And I like that. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Why did mm-hmm. he just deny that? But also, it was interesting just sort of like the whole, like, these two people in bed and then having, like, the code on the bed and having their name tags. Like, what's going on here? Like, is this... Yeah. Get those you know, close-ups uh, of their name tags. Almost as, uh, yeah. Jeff, like he wants to say these are equal, equal partners here, which is an yeah, interesting exactly. way to but show it. It's it's also interesting because, like, um, again, I guess it's kind of, for that time, it's also kind of um, uh, almost risque because you're seeing, like, a couple in bed. Like, I mean, yeah. obviously you would never see that on television, but especially uh, having these two... Uh, big, big a- actors, actor and actress, um, and especially, I think uh, it also mentioned somewhere that, uh, and what I was reading was that Hitchcock kind of wanted to take away the whole good girl, like, Julie Andrews vibe, and, like, throw her in the first scene, she's, like, having sex, and mm-hmm. which is, like, totally not Mary Poppins, <laughs> and totally not Sound of Music. Well, it could um, be in some people's imaginations. Well, for sure. Um, yeah. Spoonful of sugar. Uh, <laughs> a spoonful but, of yes, uh, please. <laughs> uh, uh, helps the intrigue go down. Okay. Um, it but, does, yeah. But anyways, okay. it's just like, okay, this is interesting. Is this going to just be like, you know, like a romantic comedy? Like, you know, they're yeah. fooling around in a bed. like, And then all of a sudden, yeah, and then there's this like, okay, so there's a telegram. Okay, it happens. But mm-hmm. why did he say no? You know? And then, yeah. and it's just really interesting how... Newman, and you can see, like, oh, okay, what's going on here? Because, like, his persona changed. Like, it's almost like, oh, maybe he's a spy because, like, he was very, like, he just kind of, he did, he flicked that switch of, like, hmm, boom. And then he was kind of, you know, uh, avoiding the question and and changing the topic while he's, you know, they're just sort of, like, frolicking in the bed, which was interesting. Yeah. And we get in this section also the first of several, I think. I mean, we don't have the count, but there's at least three or four times in this film where characters talk about eating or meeting to eat for lunch and never really getting yeah. there and never having meals <laughs> yeah. at the right time. And that's the first of those moments. But we eventually get to Copenhagen. And while in the room, Sarah intercepts a call instructing Michael to go collect a book from the bookstore, yeah. which, of course, was what Hitchcock showed us over the radiogram on the boat. And Michael tries to stop her, but comes from the shower a little bit too late. Uh, I don't know if that's a euphemism for anything, but certainly that's physically what happens. And she thinks that she's accompanying 
as an assistant again, and in this case, right. doing some doing something ha- helpful. But instead, she complicates the situation, and that's one of the things I didn't like about the story is that it really paints a picture for how espionage can't work when you bring relationships in, you know, it, it, it's almost well, a yeah. perfect story for so. that. Isn't it? Like if you want to be a good yeah. spy, don't bring your partner, don't bring your husband, don't bring your wife, your boyfriend, just do your work. Exactly. Yeah. And maybe unless, you're, yeah. Un- unless you're, unless your partner, unless your yeah, wife your, is your partner. Is, yeah, in like the Americans. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Of course. Exactly. Of course. <laughs> Absol- absolutely. Yeah. But uh, Josh, yeah. you got anything to talk about from this section, whether at the hotel in Copenhagen and the bookstore, which is kind of um, cool. Yeah, like yeah, uh, it, it's it's again we're getting more intrigue. Uh, it's developing the very strong first act. Uh, we're getting we're starting to we're we're kind of on the side of Julie Andrews because we're not quite sure what uh, Michael is up to yet. So yeah. the, uh, we're automatically on uh, Sarah's side. So we're trying to figure out as she does what's going on, and that part was really intriguing mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Uh, you say very strong first act. I'll probably come to disagree with you when we look at our score, but I think I understand what you mean. Insofar as we're seeing it from Julie Andrews' point of view, the character does seem to have a bit of agency here when she volunteers to go do that, or, you know, I get that. I, I see that point, yeah. Well, there's a lot of okay. I like her. I like her. I like the drama. I like. I, I like the drama. I like the emotional investment of Ooh, her trying to figure exactly. out what's going on with her husband. I'm sympathetic to her. I, I want to find out. You know, sorry, her fiance. I want her. I want her to figure this out. I want to see what he's up to. Is he doing something nefarious? Is he a spy? And and she's going to be brought into this world. Or, and uh, what is her reaction to it going to be? You know, and how is this going to affect her? And so I'm already pulled in at this point. Yeah. Okay. You're okay. invested cool. because, like, he's doing something possibly nefarious. And she has just the complete best intentions as a loving fiancé. She just wants to go help him, get the book for him. You know, you finish your shower, I'll go get it for you, no problem. And then it's, and we're watching know. this thinking of her as Mary Poppins, too. We have to always consider yeah. that, don't we? Like, so exactly. she is yeah. she is the innocent going to do the helpful thing. And I guess that would be amplified a bit for contemporary audiences, maybe in a way that it wasn't for me. Like, I, I can think about that point, but I can't really feel it in quite the same way. Mm. So, Michael Retrieve... Then we have... Sorry? I was going to say another element to talk about on the ship and also in Copenhagen would be uh, the character of uh, Manfred, Professor Manfred, mm-hmm. uh, because he was sort of like, is he into Julie Andrews? Like, is yeah. he attracted to her character? And he and he doesn't like Michael, or is there something more? But we then, of course, learn that out, yeah. he's more of like a minder, you know. Like, if you think of you know the Living Daylights and those people that uh, followed Kara Malovi around, like like uh, Bratislava, it's it's that kind of mm-hmm. uh, relationship, yeah, sort of, yeah, relationship, yeah, sort of, mm-hmm. like a, an entourage or a guide for the foreign trip. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So Michael retrieves the book and he acquires the information, uh, which of course is the symbol Pi on some page, something. Hitchcock gives us one of those great, and we see them throughout his career, these sort of really interesting uh, detailed shots of the text and the pages flipping and stuff. And Mm -hmm. Sarah starts to put things together. She doesn't put things together that, you know, like a big Jenga tower, but she's got a few blocks that she knows need to fit somewhere, but she can't quite figure it out yet. Um Michael and Sarah have dinner, and of course, this is where the conflict starts, uh, turns fraught when she tells her that he's going to be away for a significant amount of time. He lies and says that he's going to be in Sweden, which is not true. Um, But, I mean, before we go any further, anything there, guys, you want to talk about? Visually, acting-wise? 
I think this scene is is uh, half good. I think Andrews is really good in this scene. <laughs> Me too. But yeah. Newman, I find, uh, but I find that Newman uh, just like didn't know how to play it, or he he couldn't go to his method acting depth with it, and he just had to do what Hitchcock told him to do, and that was to be an utter dick and to also give incredible suspicion over to his wife as to what's going on. He never any kind of diplomatically tried to no. you know uh, manipulate her or change her mind of what he's doing. He's like, no, this is. You know, uh, he put his hand down fir- firmly. Uh, he never really tried to convince her that he was doing something that just that she shouldn't be involved in. Mm-hmm. He wasn't sympathetic to her situation. No. He just like cut her off directly, yeah. and that was very abrupt. and And to me, like it, it, it suspended my disbelief as to if he expected her to give up after that point, especially if she's his fiance yeah. and spend the rest of his life with him. Yeah, yeah. Like it just didn't just didn't gel for me at all. I agree, Jeff. Oh no! I, that's exactly what it is. I just was like, "Really? You think she's just yeah. gonna give up?" Like, yeah, that's how I felt too. It was just so very if forceful. If you're literally like, you know, engaged, you think mm-hmm. the person you plan to spend the rest of your life with is just gonna say, "Okay, bye." Like, no, it's not gonna. But this, this was the problem yeah. for me. I think we're all saying it. This was one of the moments where it started to go off the rails for me yeah, because it's, it's this exactly is a woman where who a crack started. You know, this is a woman who has already been introduced to us as an educated an agency afforded woman, right? And here she is sitting at a table like a deer in headlights while Paul Newman doesn't even properly baffle. He just says, no, no, you know, I, yeah. I, 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 yeah. get on the plane, get on the plane, go home. No, sorry, that's Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we knew you know that what was I mean? going to happen eventually. I, it just crept out of there. It's, just a, it's a monster in here. Mm-hmm. Anyway, no, but the point is, this is like this was the first moment in the film where I was like, you know what, this doesn't feel right. Like she's just taking it, and okay, patriarchy, sixties, I guess, like women's lib is yeah. on the way. But I mean, it's Julie Andrews, so is she yeah, a bit softer? I, yeah. Paul Newman, but Josh, what I what you said strikes me as quite interesting because Hitchcock said that he could never get one of these plain shots out of Paul Newman. One of the reasons why he he struggled to work with him is because he would never give him a blank reaction. He always had to find emotion in something or turn from the camera or you know, like he he never did give one of these plain sort of you know convincing conversation or rebuttal sort of looks it was always like kind of chewing his cheek to try to find some extra something and this is a scene i think where there's a lot of that bumbling around as if as you said paul newman doesn't really know how to act it but i don't think he was just taking hitchcock's direction i think he was trying to find something deep i think here and he didn't really know i think you're right yeah you can go you know go to kaminsky's classes and learn to be a method actor but does that mean you're a good method actor you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Well, Paul Newman is a fantastic <laughs> actor. I mean, we, we well, all the time. He is. But, yes. he but is, here in but this scene? It could, it, 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 it's it, yeah. tough. It, it seems like it's a mesh of two styles that just couldn't work together. Yeah, Maybe that's really what did. it is. And I think Julie Andrews is the one on the receiving end of that misfortune, to be honest. Yeah. Yes. I agree. Well, they have no chemistry. Yeah, no. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a true thing. Yes. Okay, so they have this conversation. Um, Sarah confronts Michael on his strange behavior and coldness and discovers his intent to fly to Stockholm. This, of course, is not true. In the conversation, as we mentioned, his plan is to disappear without her knowing that he was on a mission. He really absently, coldly dismisses that responsibility of love that I think he, as in a, as, as a fiancé, should have there, as you're saying, Jeff, and just says, go back to New York. And that's kind of yeah. like... 
And that, yeah. yes, you know, he doesn't even try to find another way no. to leave her like surreptitiously. He <laughs> like, did he, like, I understand he's not a spy. But you have to understand, this is a huge. This is a huge undertaking. Like you'd have to think, you'd have to do your homework. I mean, obviously he's not stupid, especially of who he is, uh, the character. Like you know, he's a scientist, and he, so he knows he knows what goes into thinking and, and and following through and steps and all that kind of stuff. So how could he just be so callous and just be like, oh, yeah, I'm not going to have any it, kind of a, a backstory or 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 anything to sort of like. Either come up with like a you know like a uh, you know an excuse or, or mm-hmm. like again like a fake backstory like it's just bullshit <laughs> it and is. he's and really this, bad at it yeah. and it's like come on man you got to think of something and she just takes the only it. thing I liked about this part though is actually mm-hmm. the the tracking shot of her walking yeah to get, yeah to get the uh, to look to ask the the concierge about the ticket about the tickets, and it was yeah. all one shot and it and mm, I nice. noticed because I was watching that scene last night is it was all one fluid movement and then the camera went almost behind the counter and I was like that mm. was a nice shot it's quite cool wasn't it really cool there are some great camera yeah. shots in here and that that's definitely, oh, absolutely definitely one of them but yeah. uh, technically cinematography yeah, technically it's, is first yeah, exactly. rate in this film. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, Sarah discovers that he has actually bought tickets to Berlin, buys a ticket on the same flight, unbeknownst to him. Uh, he is quite surprised by her appearance on the plane, confronts her quite angrily, <laughs> how aggressively, does he, how does he, tells her to go know. home. Uh, yeah. Surprise, Pikachu face. <laughs> yeah. One, th- one thing I liked, though, about, and this is just a little, little thing, it's, is that if you notice that the signs on the plane were Russian and German. Oh, I didn't notice that. Nice touch. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. Because then you're like you're going, you're definitely going behind the Iron Curtain. Because if mm-hmm. both languages are not English, one of them's Russian, one of them's German, then okay, you're definitely nice flying one. to East Berlin. Yeah. That's, I, I, I pick just up on that. that one a little bit. That's yeah. good. Well done, and that's a good detail from you know the the filmmaker's point of view. Obviously, Smart. give him credit for that. Yes. <laughs> because if I made that film, I probably wouldn't have done that. I would be like, yeah, just slap Air Canada on the side. Let's fucking go, boys. You know what I mean? <laughs> Please have all of your um, American wives that you're bringing over to uh, East Berlin. You know, um, yeah, to East Berlin in the back. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so in she's the- sitting there in the back of the plane. Uh, she gets chumpatized when um, mm. Michael goes back and looks at her and really is quite nasty and angry to her. Yeah. Uh, but finally, he's forced to accept her presence and holds a little brief conference uh, coming down the, off the plane, announcing his intention yeah. to work in a German university, essentially de- or effectively defecting from the United yeah. States. It's revealed that his anti-weapons program, Gamma 5, in the United States has had its funding removed. And so he wants to continue the work in the spirit of what's best for humanity, of course, uh, over with the Germans because they they got the shit, as it were. So here's my pro- oh sorry okay I guess it's the, it's this scene and the previous scene we were just discussing is why why did he why couldn't he have used the anger and frustration of the play now I, again it didn't happen yet but the fact is why couldn't he have used that frustration and that sort of urgency of like get the hell out of here mm-hmm. at the table. Instead mm-hmm. of like when she's on the plane, like if you had given mm-hmm. her that much, excellent of a, question. Of like sort excellent of like question. a, a, a mm-hmm. of like here, you want a reason? Like I'm a total dick. Yeah. I don't yeah. watch you anymore. Exactly. Get the hell out of Dodge. Yeah. And yeah. why? Like you're on an airplane. What's she gonna do? Jump out? Like I know yeah. Mary Poppins can fly, but she's not Mary Poppins <laughs> in this film. So that's right. Yeah. There's no umbrella. Like, why, why now do that? Like yeah. why choose this point to be like you know the mm-hmm. 1960s misogynistic like husband to be. 
It's like, an excellent question. Do it yeah. when and, you're at yeah. the restaurant where she has a choice to fly back. She's not like stuck in the air curtain yep. in airspace. Like, what are you doing? Like, as a, I was like, really? It's okay. the naivety. It's the male naivety because he just yep. thought that she would, she would attend to his request after getting up from the table, yeah. I guess. Oh, yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, it's stupid. It's like, oh, yeah, no problem. I'll just. I suppose, though, Jeff. It would also deprive Hitchcock of an opportunity to to use the camera within that sort of ref- that confined setting of the airplane cabin, you know, where he gets to he gets to focus on Newman as he kind of transforms and walks down the aisle, and we get that sort of pull away focus. I like that shot; maybe. like that was good yeah. because it was a very awkward scene. So you have all the other people yes. looking around, like that. It was well shot; like I liked it, like you know. Mm-hmm. But I was like, "This is stupid." <laughs> well, Josh, why don't I come to you then, buddy, uh, to talk about this next little bit? If you want to start us off. So the entourage arrive in the Berlin Hotel, where Sarah conveys her instinct to protect Michael, even though he's had quite a secretive nature. She doesn't really know everything that's going on. And the next morning, Michael is trailed by his bodyguard, Gromak, uh, to a rural outpost. You want to just kind of talk, lead us into the, the, the killing of Gromak here, who has already been introduced to us as part of the entourage. Yeah, he discovers Michael's true motives within the Pi Network, and when he discovers a symbol scratched into the sand, the game is up, you know? Game's a bogey, as they say over here in Scotland. So you want to you wanna take us through <laughs> a little bit of chat there? Yes, absolutely. So Michael goes to this uh, farmhouse outside of Lipstick. Uh, I want to point out, though, uh, before, when they land in uh, East Berlin, uh, the whole s- reveal of the press conference and him revealing he's a defector yeah. to the East... I thought that was also a really good scene. That and, was really uh, good, actually. Like to that. me, like if you if you take out that idiocy on the plane mm. and also the dinner scene, like if for some reason if he knew he wanted to bring his wife with him because he loves his fiance with him because he loves her and he bamboozled her to come with him and then he did that reveal and her reaction would have been so believable that I think that the uh, the Stasi would have bought it completely. And then he that's could then good, deal with that's her a good in private. Point. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I, I think they had a real opportunity there to play with I things. I think you're right. With, and also give more agency to Julie Andrews' character because then she would have been being kind of manipulated by him, right? And then they could have had like a, rec- a stronger reconciliation scene later on when she realizes what he's doing. Ah, you know? that, that's a good I think, point. I, I really think that like could have been scene. more powerful. I thought that I, was I actually like that, a very yeah. powerful scene. It's, a, it's not often you see that. You know, I know that we're going back sort of like a scene from what we're actually discussing, but I That's liked okay. that scene right. um, from discussing when he steps off the plane and just sort of her amazement of what's actually happening. And then you go into the actual press conference, which was amazing, and also just sort of the awkwardness of, of Newman's character trying to, like, yeah. explain and talk and answer questions, but then also have that that spotlight and the eye daggers of Julie Andrews' disbelief in him trying to, you know, just get all of his notes in order. And, and, and anyway, can I ask I, you, Jeff? I, I like that scene though. Can I ask you, buddy, what, what press and I, I defer to you simply as the cold war expert on our show. Um, sure. What, what sort of precedent was there for <laughs> these impromptu or not impromptu as it were press conferences when dignitaries or, you know, figures would kind of jump and drop. In in behind the Iron Curtain. I mean, is there much on that? Mm. I is don't. There any, is there any realism I, I, to this scene? Well, I think th- maybe it was inspired by the Burgess and McLean defection. Well, because yeah, like there is an interview. Because like now it wasn't here, but it was the um, oh my goodness um, when when um, 
I think it was Guy Burgess, right? When he went to Russia, because when mm-hmm. he got off the plane, then there was a press conference, right? And okay, that's right. Where he kind of right. he's like, yeah, I'm here, and like you know, that. this is this older British man surrounded by all the Russians, and then he's just talking, and he's obviously very well spoken. He's very British, but he's like, yeah, here I am, uh, and okay. and it was just it's sort of it just it blew everyone's mind. Right. So I'm thinking it's. Uh, you know, it's similar to that, and it's okay. a very, it's a very um, unbelievable sort of situation, and and uh, it's it's a, it was also very interesting that you had a lot of you had American sort of press asking, and and you could tell like sort of they're discussing the question, and you could also, and I like seeing the almost the the disgust and uh, in. Um, and uh, naivety and embarrassment in in Paul Newman's mm-hmm. <laughs> character mm-hmm. trying yes. to describe everything. Yeah, it's kind of also a startling image, I think, for American audience to see Paul Newman as a very American actor, you know, defecting, playing a character defecting to the East, right? Fakely so defecting. So that yeah. kind of really vaguely defecting. And then, of course, afterwards, you know, when we meet... Uh, it's interesting, though, because in that scene, we meet Gromek and we meet Gerhard, mm-hmm. uh, who... To me, is like a uh, this guy Hein uh, Hans Jörg Felmy as Gerhard. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, he was like some German James Mason. He, he was really good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he was. He was good. But it's in that sequence where we meet the true villain of the film, and that's the ballerina because you first see her mm-hmm. in that yeah. sequence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's oh, the one boy. who uh, who calls it one all of in. One Hitchcock's great villains, in my opinion. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll see how well she holds up. I don't right. know. Fraulein Mann is also a pretty good uh, yes. competitor for her, though. Yes, I absolutely agree. Yeah, and I also think Joseph yeah. Cotton is a great villain too. In Shadow of a Doubt, I think he's one of my, probably my favorite. But anyway, we're getting off. We're getting off track. Yeah. So, so I want to mention Gromek. We get the sequence where Michael leaves the hotel after leaving uh, oh, Sarah. Yeah. There, he goes to the old uh, museum mm-hmm. in uh, like goes to the old museum to kind of lose his tail. Oh yeah, uh, Gromek's yeah. tail. That, really that good sequence. Fun. That was a really good nice the lack shot. Of, the lack of score, mm, the sound nice. of the footsteps, yep. very well put together. He manages to duck out and he gets his ride to this farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. Um, we meet the, 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 I guess, the other pie agent who I assume was probably NSA or CIA or whatever he oh, might have been. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The farmer. Uh, yeah. This guy, this guy, the farmer, this guy who's basically a proto Sam Elliott, basically. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mort Mills yeah. is the actor's name. Yeah. Mort Mills. Yeah. I, I guarantee you that guy did some Westerns. Um, <laughs> in the same costume. If he didn't, it would be a wait. Yeah. In the same costume. Right, that was a really good sequence. Quaker oatmeal adverts. <laughs> Yeah. We're then, as an audience, brought up in terms of knowledge in the story that now we know that Paul Newman's character is not only a defector, mm-hmm. he's also a fake defector. We know that he's a spy, and we know that now poor Sarah is totally out of the loop completely. Mm-hmm. But at least we're kind of redeemed uh, narratively, I yeah. suppose, that we know that Paul Newman is a good guy. And with all this darkness and yeah. tension going on, we know that, that this will play a part, uh, I guess, towards a, a good ending, I, I suppose. So then we get back to the farmhouse, and then we realize uh, we're, we know Gromek is there now waiting for him. Uh, and then they have the whole conversation. Gromek, Gromek knows about Pi. He sees through uh, Newman's, uh, Michael's bullshit. And then you get just that, that great moment where the farmer's wife just acts. She's and then awesome. it all like just, that. Yep. Yeah. She is just, awesome. it just She just acts and it's just like... She's seen this before. The whole situation yep. just goes tits up. You know, it's just like it becomes this violent struggle. You know, if you see it, as we talked about in so many modern dramas today, it's the intensity of the violence. Mm-hmm. I also like the hint of Michael's professionalism, maybe as a spy more so than just a scientist, 
when he definitely closes the shutters so that a guy can't Gromit can't scream out. Well, they both the taxi driver. exactly, yeah. yeah. To the taxi driver, yeah. and just just the subtlety of like the the cord on the phone and the the the, the insinuation of the violence of that itself. Gr- I agree. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And the violence, I guess you could say, of Gromek going right into the oven. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah, that was uh, that was intense. And then, of course, you get the the time bomb beginning to uh, the time bomb is activated with the burying of the body, and we know that eventually there's a small amount of time uh, until the Stasi discover the body and Gerhard and everyone starts coming after uh, Michael and uh, Sarah. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite lines uh, just before the scene was when uh, he was basically uh, speaking to um, Paul, uh, Michael, and he was saying like, "Hey, so you didn't tell us you had a fiance?" He's like, "Oh, I didn't know she was going to come," but he's like, "Yes." I'm, but when he first said that, uh, "Yes, that security service," like I liked that. Like he kind of was yes. like, "Yeah, I noticed yeah. that too." Yeah, oh, I, the I SS. liked what he said. Okay. I was like, "Oh." Right. Well, the old SS. Well, yeah, that's a well, threat. The, the I mean, he means like yeah. it's like KGB. Well, I thought he meant like KGB Stasi, but uh, you're probably okay, right. Yeah. It's like, oh, no, no, you're probably right. I'm sure he was SS because he's old okay, enough. Just, you know, reworked into the Stasi. Yeah, yeah I but don't I, know. Just, I think the Russians would have shot him if he was SS. I don't think they would have let him. If he if he was SS, he's hiding it. Oh, <laughs> that's all I have to say. Oh yeah, you know what? Yeah, yeah that's a good point. You're right. Yeah. So I'm. Anyways. What do you think of his Americanisms? Like. The whole thing about like I lived on 34th Street. Oh no, no, uh, I meant really I, I meant the other guy. Pizza place. Yeah, I meant, yeah um, you meant Gerhard. Gerhard. Yeah, yeah, I meant Gerhard. Not not Gerhard. Yeah, because yeah. I yeah. I just liked how he was kind of like, yes, that security service. And I was like, yeah, oh, okay, I like that. I, I I actually really liked when he said that. I thought that was pretty. Good. It was cool, like and, a little yeah, yeah a little and, little uh, something for the fans. Yeah, Gromick, I didn't mind that. I I I appreciate when he was trying to. You know, sort of be on the same level. Like, I'm not a bad guy. I lived in America. That a lot of people like. I noticed in a lot of movies they do that. You're like, oh yeah, you know, uh, hey, you can't throw the wool over my eyes. Uh, you know, I watched the baseball game 12 years ago. I know. That's America. right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, but yeah. also, it gave but him a jovial good, facade. Though. Yeah, a jovial exactly. facade that yep. was really this like monster. This you know. Yep. The guy who would have shot them at a moment's notice, you know what I mean? I love the part where he's like, "I went to night. I went to. I went to night school. I went to a, a you know, different and I was night like, school. Uh, yeah, a different night school. Yeah, that's what. Mm-hmm. It is. A different night yeah. school. Yeah, sorry, that was good. Yeah. But I like that part. Yeah. <laughs> Can we just talk a bit about this scene because it is the centerpiece of the movie? I think we would all agree with with the critics who have said this long before we have that this is probably the best scene in the film oh, in terms of yeah, its technical it's my scene, 100%. in terms of its technical work and in yeah. terms of its performance i mean josh you you mentioned the sort of professionalism that might hint at armstrong being a good spy but there's an inconsistency in that when he washes his hands and needs yes. the farmer's oh, wife yeah. to wash his hands for him because yeah. he's he's really he, shaken he's never by killed it before yeah there's there's a freshness to the whole experience but um mm. and this is certainly a, a delayed scene as, as we mentioned before I, I really do like this part in the film both addison and herman scored for this but hitchcock decided to leave it quiet which i think helped with that verisimilitude that he was aiming for yeah. but there is you know if you listen to either score you will hear the herman um, song is yeah. excellent and very dark yeah the killing yeah. track oh, yeah. is awesome yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm mm-hmm so, I mean, uh, we're all probably saying the same thing, that this is a really compelling scene, and it's up there with the best of Hitchcock's work. It has to be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
and 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 I think a lot, almost a lot of works in cinema in general, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. suspense thrillers, you know, uh, haven't really. If you think of you know like even uh, the the uh, Orient Express fight between Grant and Bond and From Russia of Love, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's on that level. It's one of those uh, small, it's probably much better, actually, but yeah. dirty battles that just stay in one place, and it's yeah. al- it's not one shot, but it almost feels like it's one shot. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Though I'll the be honest, I kind of wanted it to cut back to the guy just being a farmer. I just wanted to see like do 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 plow in the field, yeah, just to, to quietly like, put a big yeah. guy's head in the oven. And he's like, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, there yeah. is something in that, that but, but that and that would have been a very Hitchcock thing to do, like have the have the joke at the end of it, you know, because he liked he liked you know, all in that, that. cornfield. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in that cornfield, it's about to see a crop duster come by, but that didn't happen. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, no, it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> we got we, we got a tractor instead. It's more grounded. Yeah. They're in control now. <sighs> Crop dusters. Sure. Uh, yeah, so that to me, like in terms of the editing and cinematography, it was just so excellent. Yeah. And, and again, the, the lack of diegetic sound for that was a brilliant choice on Hitchcock's part. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it sold the scene even better than when it would without the music, despite, you know, both sex selections being very strong in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, it sold it very well to me. Uh, and again, this is like when things start to kick into gear. But I find this is also when this becomes Michael's story now, and Sarah begins to lose her agency drastically at this point. And so now we get to the part now where where Michael goes to the university, mm-hmm. and then he's called into questioning about Gromick in the middle of it, and mm-hmm. Dr. Lint is still, is still happy to go and listen to yeah. uh, Sarah instead. I found that kind of not believable. That mm-hmm. and we don't see her struggle or 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 you know triumph to get and, and answer those questions correctly, or even in a way create some sort of drama that could uh, intimidate Michael or her not or her you know it, to, to not intimidate sorry incriminate Michael. We're not seeing that in this sequence at all. And again, it just robs her of her agency by just hand waving it. Oh, it went fine. The questioning went fine and. And well, here we are yes now getting no. drunk with, 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 with the professor. Yes and no. I, I mean, it does kind of breeze past it, but there is that very sustained shot. I mean, it's almost 30 seconds, I counted it, where we see that sort of tight close-up on Julie Andrews as she sort of, you can see her brain kind of trying to figure out what's the best response here, the pressure she's under. It doesn't, it doesn't show her as a heroic figure. It doesn't give us resolution in the way that we want it for the agency that we were promised, but it does, mm-hmm. it does convey some strategizing on her part. And it is deliberate yes. on Hitchcock's part to show her under duress there. I, f- I feel like the camera's yes. doing the work mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but you know, you're and right. It then, it then sweeps, it then sweeps onto the dinner uh, and the drinks and the dance. And I see your well, point. Keep in mind though, I should mention though, prior to the dinner though, is that sequence where he gets tripped up yeah. where, we're, we get tripped up and we meet Dr. Casca and mm. we're seeing, yeah. but we're, we're still not sure. Are these like, are these spies actually a trick? Yeah, exactly. That he like, is working for the allies? Yeah. So yeah. there is, there is an intensity mm-hmm. to that. You don't know yet. Um, but I also want to point out that before the... Sorry, buddy, but I would argue that not everybody in the audience is going to make that sort of, mm, no. are, is this a double fake? People are going to go linear with this story. They're only intelligent True. readers and intelligent thinkers are going to, are going to want to go there and think, is this a... A plant yeah. to kind of call him out or what? Yeah, like I, I wouldn't. Down the road, BFG. yeah, and down yeah. the road they would be like, oh, that's a twist or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Right? So, yeah. But I want to point out that before the dinner sequence, we do have the reconciliation scene. What did you guys think about how that was filmed and how that was edited and and handled by Hitchcock in particular? 
Yeah, it's all right. Yeah, I mean, where, where they yeah. walk away from Gerhard and go up the hill, and we get a long shot of them on the top of the hill in front of the the, the backdrop where they're talking, but we can't hear them. Yeah, because the score is over. Yeah, that no way. That's fine. Yeah, we know that he's revealing the truth yeah. there. And yeah, yeah. yeah. Then we almost have like that that sound of music turn and kiss thing going on afterwards, yeah. which is. Nah, I, I don't know. I felt it was a bit forced, that scene, to be honest. And I, I like that we didn't get the dialogue. We didn't need to because Hitchcock is we image first. To. Exactly. But yeah, yeah, yes. Whatever. It was classic. I did like that aspect of it. Yeah, I did like, I did like that aspect. But I don't but care their the relationship because they got no chemistry for me. So no, I was like, fuck thing. it. Like, we're all, we're already yeah. like, who cares? That Two branches yeah, on a hill. Yeah. Going forward, though, once we get to the dinner sequence, yep. Uh, we we got Professor Lint is getting drunk now, mm-hmm. and uh, Michael is challenging him. He's uh, goading him, mm-hmm. and this of course leads to the formula sequence where where uh, Michael manipulates this brilliant professor for the formula that he's looking for. Yeah, I like the concept of that sequence, yeah. mm-hmm. but I yeah. think that it's unrealistic, and yeah. I also find that like it's just too convenient that they're able to do that in that amount of time to basically uh-huh. uh, it's like it's like you're. You're you're crushing you're crushing you're you're squeezing blood from a stone yeah. at this moment trying to get this information yeah. on a on a time clock. You know that Gromick's been found. You know that they're on their way right now. There's not enough time, mm-hmm. and you're trying to do this in a, in a fast amount of time. Yeah. Like I found like while that was well conceived, sure. as a whole, when it works into the story, it's just the sequence itself to me is just unbelievable. And I got to ask you guys in terms of its realism. How realistic is it that Lint would be allowed in his office, door closed, alone, no protection for his data or his knowledge, and, and he would just be allowed to talk this way through, you know? No, there's no friggin' way. If he's that important, you're gonna... They, he would at least have someone outside the door. Like, I mean, he might be in his room uh, mm-hmm. by himself, but at the same time, they're, they're, they would have to have someone close by to monitor him, because... At that time with the Cold War and like everyone being subject to, you know, uh, he would have his own monitor and, and watch security, right? Like, yeah, security. exactly. I mean, they probably would even have him being listened to. Like, there's probably some kind of listening device or something. So it, it's it's a bit unbelievable. Yeah, I would say. I mean, it, it's okay. it's very possible that that could have happened, but that would be a large oversight, and uh, yeah, and a lot of trust would be surprised because. I mean, the Stasi and KGB were. I, I mean, they were top notch. Like you can, you can hate them as much as you want, but they were very, very good at what they did. And I, I can't see them like <laughs> missing this. I've <laughs> been doing that that much of an oversight in this case. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so then we've got the pressure increasing with the discovery of Gromek's body, which does mm-hmm. force the issue of the security, but not before Professor Lint himself says, "Wait a minute." You haven't shared anything with me. This is a ruse. I've been played. And he calls the security in the university. And then we get sort of yep. the the handheld <laughs> movement into the third act, which is all about the escape. And that's the, you know, the, the university pro- pro- propel or the university um, is, is the beginning of the escape. Right. And so yeah. we then see the characters boarding the transportation provided with the help of the doctor, his female contact. Mm. Michael and Sarah begin their full escape. And they hop on this bus, and uh, I really like this scene, guys. I got to say, this this oh, plays yeah. really, really well it's for good. me. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. The pacing of it is nice, and I know, it wasn't, it I know that it wasn't. I know it wasn't right. In it. 
Very good urgency, and it wasn't exactly to Hitchcock's liking. I know that he was disappointed with the way the uh, the uh, rear projection operated here. He apparently he had oh, a yeah. German crew that he was wanting, or that he he wished that he had brought an American crew over to get the footage of the second bus and to mm-hmm. put the plates in and things like that because he just never really liked the way it it came out on film. I, I thought it was all right mm-hmm. actually. And this, this, I guess, is a difference between me, your chumpy guy, just watching and enjoying the film, and the auteur who has higher expectations <laughs> and standards for himself. Yeah, I, I did read just a couple of comments from another, uh, like another kind of review, and people were saying they really didn't like that either. They thought it was pretty chintzy, but I mean, what are you going to do? Yeah. They had mentioned that it was very shaky, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. It, it took them out of the scene a bit. Well, do you know, buddy, I think you're onto something and they are onto something because if you think of The Man Who Knew Too Much, the remake with Jimmy Stewart and Doris Day, there's a lot of that same sort of plate work and rear projection. And it and that's 10, 12 years previous to this. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I can see why Hitchcock looks back and says, I could have done it better with a different crew, mm, maybe. Possibly. Mm, yeah. Because yeah. it's 12 years advanced in film technology. Yeah, you know, innovations yeah. have definitely come that to allow them yep. to do that, right? I mean, look at, we're about a year or mm-hmm. two away from Steve McQueen and Bullet, right? So we have... Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you can definitely, yeah, no, you're right. The, the technology's there. It's, yeah, mm-hmm. it was probably there and available, anyway. but probably not Universal was interested. There could be many reasons why. Uh, this particular sequence... Um, if you think about anyone who's ridden the bus and the whole idea of bunching, and that's like when the schedule is when <laughs> there's one, like the second bus that you're supposed to have is delayed for whatever reason, and that bus is finally coming. So in the real world, we're like, oh sweet, I missed the I missed the bus, but the second bus is is early, so I get to go on it. Great. Yeah. And here it was like a, a lingering menace all the way through, and mm-hmm. I just love that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, this is yeah, yeah this funny. to me is my second favorite sequence in the entire film. Yep. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because, Me because too. again, if we look at it here, the, the obvious aspect of both these scenes is the urgency. It, it's the suspense because there is really no suspense in the rest of the film. Um, I mean, there is in, in certain parts, but if you look obviously at the, the the key important scenes, is you know the fight scene and the killing scene of Gromick, and this because you're you're emotionally invested, like they're yeah. trying to escape. Like now they know that they're. You know, their goose is cooked. They got to get out. And they got so to do the stops right. as well. Urgency. They have to do the stops to maintain yeah. the illusion. Mm-hmm. So never have my yeah, nails, exactly. never been on the edge of my seat about an old lady trying to get on board a bus, you know, and everyone <laughs> yeah, going I know, like, oh my God. And then the whole sequence. Yeah, that's really good. And then there's also the whole uh, monkey wrench that's thrown in there, or at least kind of like an antagonist for that sequence. You have Fraulein Mann who just wants those Americans off yeah, the bus. She wants yeah. them off the bus. But exactly. doesn't she realize yeah. what they're doing? Like, that, that's. But yeah. she was more concerned about their operation. I think she does, but she's just irritated. She does, but she's just irritated. Yeah, yeah exactly. But for a moment it's there... It's not the first time her shopping's been interrupted by Americans looking to redefect. <laughs> yeah, That's true. That's, that's definitely true. Yeah. She, want, she wants to get that Rita Coolidge tune into her ears as quickly as oh. possible. Yeah, she has to get to the grocery uh, store. One thing I also... Uh, <laughs> I noticed too, and if you've ever seen uh, yeah. Alfonso Cuaron's uh, Children of Men... The sequence of, of like mm-hmm. the whole oh the butt the, scene the butt sequence and then you have like the re- like <laughs> yeah then you have the, oh my god the, the, the highway Seems robbery ridiculous. with the oh, with yeah. the deserters holding up the bus and stuff like that like that really mm-hmm. reminded me of that movie was just the whole idea of like this long extenuated journey to get to their destination that was just full of pitfalls and 
I, I, I really, I really enjoyed yeah. it. Uh, it was such a well done sequence. I agree that yeah, the the, yeah, the, the back was. plates weren't green screen. That wasn't great, but I still think it worked as a whole. I think Hitchcock should be proud of it. It did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It did. And, and I mean, ultimately, the urgency and the way that it was filmed and and, and uh, it. That's why I kind of was like, okay, well, I, I don't like the shakiness. I'm about to have a seizure. But I'm like, I'll put that yeah. aside. And I'm like, this is really good. And I just wish there was more uh, urgency and emotional investment yeah. in the rest of the film. That's what I was thinking. Mm-hmm. But I was like, okay, so it's shaky. I don't care. Yeah. Like, it could have been done better. But I was like, this is still... Uh, very well done, and and I and I appreciated the sequence for sure. From a narrative standpoint, nice you're rooting for Michael and Sarah, but I was also rooting that everyone on that bus would make it out alive because you know oh, I, yeah, I liked Mister Jacoby. Yeah, I liked exactly. Mister Jacoby. Well, yeah. He seemed like a good guy. He's a nice guy. Yeah, yeah. He, he was like he was a mm-hmm. true member of the cause, you know. And I didn't want anything to this happen is, to them, exactly. even Fraulein Man, yeah. uh, you know. In, in in a sense, so I feel that well, uh, the th- sequence I agree was one of the few moments of emotional investment for me in the movie. Exactly. It's true because you have like the two protagonists who need to get out, but then you also like everyone on that bus is in the same boat bus, I guess, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. is that they're, they're they want to escape or they're they're actively, you know, they're subver- like they're subversive to, um, you know, the uh, the the East Germans yeah. and they want they all kind of have the same that they're, you know, they want to help. And so they're all doing their own part. So they're. Every single person on that bus is in danger, and so and you can appreciate um, being an audience member and just seeing like it's very sort of stressful and and it's it's well done. So it was nice to add not just the two main characters or the protagonists. Everyone is is, is sort of they're all in it together, and that was a, a good way of showing it there. On the it really bus. props the atmosphere okay. of the situation that they're in in terms of storytelling, and uh, you you got it right, Jeff, exactly. Okay, so let's move on then, guys, and finish this up. We've got yep. um, we, we've got them arriving, looking for the post office, which is where they mm-hmm. encounter the Polish Countess Kuczynska. Mm-hmm. Uh, she helps them in return for a visa sponsorship, which she never receives. This is an odd scene, but it's kind of charming in its own little way. Yep. Yeah. She's she's one of the few splashes of color in this movie, really. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she helps yeah. them escape by by tripping the guard who pursues yeah. um, Michael and Sarah. Well, and again, we have her? this... Does she get punished for that? Like, you never know. Yeah, I know, right? Oh, yeah. I it's kind of sad. Sad. It's kind of sad, yeah. but um, we get more of the the uh, anyway, whatever. Blah blah blah. Uh, so then we get uh, good them sense escaping. of urgency in that scene, though. Yeah, there is. There's a nice sense of urgency in that. Um, two men, one being the farmer, later meet Sarah and Michael on the street when they're watching television right. just before their own yep. face comes on it, which is quite cool. <laughs> He yeah. gives them tickets to the ballet from which they're going to escape and gain passage to Sweden. And this is really the last sort of suspense mm-hmm. plot that we get, yes. which is where they're recognized by that ballerina that Josh mentioned at the beginning <laughs> and reported to the authorities by the ballerina when she goes off stage. And we get that sort of weird sort of camera freeze instantaneous sort of thing that cycles over three or four times. And that kind of heightens the anger of you know the ballerina. It's quite a weird little mm-hmm. capture, but Hitchcock plays it. Yep. And then they, uh, yeah, and then Armstrong shouts fire, escapes through the crowd with Sarah. They they meet their contact backstage. They hide into hampers and are ferried across the Baltic Sea. Yep. And uh, despite that little close call from the ballerina, yeah. thinking that she's Very identified the correct call. hampers and oh yeah, machine guns them. <laughs> Michael yeah. and Sarah swim to safety and reach the West and John Addison's heroic music, which then turns 
kind of playful and dotty. And we're back under the cover. Fire. So back under the covers again. Back too. under the covers. Yeah. yeah. Starts under a blanket, ends under a blanket, and uh, that's that's the story. So, unless you want to say something about the last couple of scenes that I just uh, summarized for us, do you want to get into our money pennies? Yeah, I think yeah. We let's let's uh, break it down. Okay, well, I selected the film for discussion, and I think we've done a really sure nice did. job of that. So why don't I just give you my scores and of uh, my, my kind of settling points on it. Our Money Penny scoring out of 10 for story, acting, and atmosphere, which can give us uh, an index score of 30. That's what we've done throughout all of our Bond reviews. And we'll start with story. So for me... Um, I think that the first act, in contrast to what you were saying, Josh, about it kind of having a bit of power, I think the first act is rather dull and unconvincing, and it all comes from that very quick reveal that we have to wait for. Unlike a lot of Hitchcock's great films where we're playing guessing games with the character, here we've got to wait for Julie Andrews to figure it all out. Uh, we, I, we already know, as Jeff said, the reveals are there for us to read about Paul Newman being... Uh, you know, the the double agent or the agent or the defector, right? Why is he keeping secrets? So we know that he's keeping... It doesn't matter. It's a bit of a MacGuffin what his actual thing is. It's it's far more important than that uh, we, we wait for Julie Andrews to figure it out. So, I mean, I, I think that the film I does... I think that depends what kind of viewer you are. I think okay. if you just want to get a linear story and you just want to figure things out right away and be on top of the characters, I think that it's good that way. Uh, sorry, that, that it's uh, it's very dull that way, as you said. But if, you, if for, for example, if you're going, okay, so why is Paul Newman all of a sudden lying to his fiance or hiding something from her? Why is he doing that? Why is he going, you know, like, I think that creates intrigue. That's okay, my sure. impression. It, it does. Okay, it, it does. Well, maybe it comes to the, I don't like the chemistry between the two of them and I don't care. Well, like, maybe that has that's, to do with it. I don't yeah, know. That, it does that, take that could, that could That could be yeah, it. That could be again, it. That's, not, that's not story, is it? Um, the no, film does... No. The film does an excellent job of portraying uh, why agents shouldn't take their partners on fucking missions and why... <laughs> yeah, this is a question. And, and I don't know why somebody who is so intelligent, either one of them, <laughs> does such a very intelligent. Move. Yeah, like, it just seems so dumb yeah, and inane. It's dumb. And, and, yeah, and, yeah. And, it's dumb. There is some interesting emotional tension in the first half. I'll give you that much. But the, the the bus journey and Gromach's killing aren't just kind of like the best bits in a really good film. For me, they're the best parts of a otherwise pretty boring story. And there is always, yep. with Hitchcock, good visual stuff. You won't be bored always watching the movie. But the story no. for me was boring. I wasn't mm. really drawn into it. Um, I, I appreciate, you know, that there has been a lot of craft gone into trying to tell a Cold War story in an anti-Bond sort of way. But I think, by and large, Torn Curtain's narrative is just kind of okay. It's mm. it, it, it holds up with some of Hitchcock's lesser stories. But I'm, yeah, I mean, it's pretty meh. It's forgettable. Most of it's ephemeral. No catharsis really at the end of it. In my opinion. No, I mean, and, and you know what? I mean, in terms of the story, too, yeah, the catharsis is, is correct. It, it's about as cathartic as the love at the beginning, which, like, sex here, sex there, eh, whatever. I, I, I don't know. I mean, you think about the movie he did, Lifeboat, right? Which is like this one, 
in East Berlin. It's set in a completely alien environment. He's, he's playing with a different environment here. We're stuck on a lifeboat in the middle of the ocean during wartime. But in those sorts of different environments, those unconventional environments, he does something really interesting with characterization, with, with the techniques. And here, there's just the characterization's a bit lame in the story, mm-hmm. the way it's written. So uh, I'm, I didn't like it. I don't know if giving it a four is... You see, I, I don't think the movie does fail. I think it's a it's a passable story, but for me, it's it's really boring. And so I'm kind of torn between do I pass it on its merit, which is probably there, or do I just give you my personal opinion, which is that I won't watch this movie again outside of a few scenes. And for that oh, reason, yeah. I think... The two scenes, I'm sure. I, I compare this to the Quiller Memorandum, the story there, which is far less in terms of its mission, maybe, but mm. it's far more interesting in terms of how yeah. it works its characters into the plot. Yeah. So, I, yes. I'm going four for this. I, I really, I really fail the story, I, and I think it's the weakest part of the entire, the entire uh, film. You, the yeah. the acting I gave a five to, and that was generous because of the supporting cast. Like I really do like, um, what's his name, Professor Lint, played by Ludwig uh, Donath. I think he's quite funny, mm. I, I, and and to me, he mm-hmm. represents a lot of these great. Uh, character actors that Hitchcock used deliberately to to direct and deliver that sort of black humor that he used to love so much. Like I think about um, Henry Travers in Shadow of a Doubt, or um, what's her name in um, what's her name in To Catch a Thief plays the mum uh, Jesse. Uh, what's the actress's name? Jesse Landis, maybe I might be wrong on that, but you know what? Their conversation is really cool because here in the movie, um, Professor Lint says that thing about oh the Vienna Waltz. Um, you know, did I tell you that my sister Emma got knocked over by a tram in Vienna or something like that? <laughs> like, I like yeah. that. That that felt really kind of like that's Hitchcock character writing, character acting. Yeah, those that stuff was really fun for me, and I liked watching him, and I liked Gromek. I thought he was great, but but the leads were really poor for me. Like Julie Andrews was just simply miscast. I know she's not. She's not an icy blonde. I get it. She's not a Grease Kelly. She's not a Kim Novak. She's not one of these sort of sexualized figures. She is Mary Poppins. No, she's definitely not, yeah. Mm -hmm. But she's written very thinly without the agency that I think could have given her a chance to be a better actor in this movie. Like, I think that the script lets her down and that she can't act it. I think Paul, Paul Newman's method acting doesn't fit with the direction. And he overacts and he's bumbling and trying to find his way through some scenes in this movie. He's mm-hmm. compelling when he has good supporters around him. But on his own, I don't know. He's he's a bit bit lame for me. So, mm-hmm. uh, I, and you know, I don't mind watching characters act and play catch up, but I have to be invested in them. And Julie Andrews' yeah. character was just... You know, the, the most interesting thing about her is what I see on her name tag at the beginning, which is that she is an, she's like works for NASA as a scientist. I'm like, cool, give me a yeah, powerful smart hey, woman. Right on. And yeah. But we, yeah. Don't get, we don't get that at all. So it's, it, she's lovely. It's just for the, for the film, she's, she's wasted, I think. Yeah. And the script wastes her. And she's just there as someone who's going to draw an audience, as you guys said earlier. So I went five for my acting because it passes. That's, that's me, though. It's just me. It's a terrible shame, but that's how I feel about these big stars in the movie. Uh, the atmosphere, for me, this is the best part about it. In a Hitchcock film, Agreed. it's probably going to be, not a surprise, but visually, there's some cool stuff here. Jeff and I were talking about the main titles, you know, how you got that dichotomy between the heat and the mist and the fire and the smoke. I, now, the rest of the film doesn't live up to that dichotomy. It doesn't no. give me that passion or that vibrancy, but in... You know, there's certainly something interesting going on there that better fits 
what Bernard Herrmann probably would do musically, right? Like, Oh, yeah. Mm. It doesn't fit with uh, some of the feel, the sort of strange kookiness of the movie. Really cool camera work of, um, well, really throughout the film. Jeff, you mentioned a couple tracking shots. You got that great overhead shot of him, Michael, leaving the elevator before he gets trailed by Gromek. I like all of that stuff mm-hmm. as he walks yeah. past the scrubbers on the floor. Um, good visual cues and motifs, like with the stairs and, you know, there's lots of stairwells mm-hmm. and lots of trip ups and stuff going on. Michael's hand washing is cool, but that's it. Like East Berlin is very drab. I think there could have been a bit more color brought into it, even though he's doing that deliberately. I would have liked yeah, it more like what the Quiller memorandum did use some of the, mm-hmm. the antiquated industrial stuff in light with modern touches. Like I think yeah. it would have been more neat to see that. I went seven for my atmosphere. It might be a bit generous, guys, but I went seven as the best feature because it's a Hitchcock film. And and if you're studying it as a Hitchcock film, as a presentation of the artwork, the craft of film, I think you're going to be very, very pleased at least to see good camera work and good filming. But yeah, overall, seven for me and uh, five and four. So that brings me to a 16 overall for uh, my selection, which kind of disappointing, but... Hey, the chat was what's important, not the final score. Well, that's exactly, exactly. So over to you guys. It it is interesting, and it could have been a lot more interesting. And I honestly think that they're phoning it in. And Mm. this also goes into the acting as well, because there's even a quote, but I'll get to that from Julie Andrews. But like the story is good, but then I I just feel like um, Hitchcock kind of just, I almost feel like he didn't really care at some points. Like... Mm. Like, I like the idea of it, um, but then as it goes, it just, I just feel like overall it just kind of peters out. Um, so there's really nothing, I, I just feel with this whole film, it's it's underwhelming, especially mm-hmm. with all the moving parts and the people involved. Like, like I mean, the people, this could yeah, be the like names, an all-star. Yeah. Like, I mean, Julie Andrews, uh, Paul Newman, uh, uh, you know, uh, Hitchcock, I mean, this it's like an all-star, it's an all-star game. Yeah. And ultimately, um, I mean, yes, it's, it it did. Everybody technically, it was it, it was yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, technically, it was in the black for um, for profits, but really, I mean, it only made like what a million or two million more than the actual budget, which is surprising. Anyways, with the story, again, it's neat that he based it on on like an actual defection. Um, that is really but cool. yes. it, but it does it does fall flat because there are just so many things that. So many carrots, like I said at the at the beginning, so many carrots on a string that nobody took a bite of, or the very small bites or nibbles, and and nothing kind of came out of it. Anyways, my number for story is five, and I think I'm also okay. being generous with that because there's nothing uh, extraordinary about it, uh, and um, it's I don't know, it just it was underwhelming as a, as a story. Well, how did you see the acting? With the moving parts that it had, it could have been like phenomenal. Yeah, it could and have been. I, again, I, I, I honestly think that Hitchcock, there was, when we were talking about those ominous and potential, like, you know, behind the scenes conversations, something is, something's off because, again, with Newman and, and Andrews, you have these excellent actors and actresses, but it just, there was no chemistry, and and again, you know, with, probably with maybe how Hitchcock may have been toxic with with the two actors, potentially, they weren't really invested, and uh, maybe because Newman is 
a, uh, a method actor and maybe Hitchcock didn't give a shit especially with that quote about like your motivation is your paycheck that yeah, doesn't help yeah. anyone out nah, so no. my acting was you're not going to win friends that way no and you're not and and there were a certain parts that I liked like I, I did like watching him squirm trying to explain like yeah she just came with me what and also in, in the press conference watching him sort of almost be sheepish and like kind of avoid the gaze of Julie Andrews mm-hmm. and, and, and yeah there was the some good talk. acting there so like I appreciated that but also again um, it's a lot of the best parts of the film were really the 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 secondary actors like the the, the supporting cast um, were, were, were well done like you were saying with Lint and all and, and I, I mean I really enjoyed um, and I, I can't remember her name but the the, the lady the uh, the housefrau I like that even for the short period she was in that she was good um, but uh, my acting was six I'll put it that way um, it, it passed but it, a lot of it was the supporting cast um, and what of your atmosphere my what atmosphere was that, was, was that your highest six. yeah seven the, the atmosphere is good I mean again like we can feel that you know this is a behind the iron curtain and and there, you know there are good there are good elements I feel like with the atmosphere of the film, it's more like when you don't really know what's going on yet and you're kind of just learning and you're kind of seeing, like, what are these characters like? Why did he say no to the yeah, telegram? Yeah, what's the motive to that? Yeah. What, what's the motive? Like, and the, you can you know, you know can hear your the, the gears turning in your head. Or And, again, when we had this conversation with Quiller, like, was that on purpose? Hmm. You know, like, are we put? you know... I'm how much sh- credit do we want to give them? How much the do we want to give... I mean, like, this Hitchcock, so we probably did, but we don't know. But so, like... So with the atmosphere, though, there's, you know, especially with, with espionage thr- thrillers and Hitchcock, atmosphere is huge for him. And he's very good at that. And um, and I think the atmosphere, like, especially with, like, the, the killing scene and the bus scene, the, the atmosphere with that, and even with, um, you know, the cafe scene with the Countess. And I also was going to say that some of the a really good scene for urgency um, and and kind of the atmosphere, I guess that's atmosphere, but also acting is is when they're waiting in the post office to like, you know, like well, to meet the contact. Keep trying to yeah, get the guy, yeah. yeah, and it's like hurry up, hurry up, like this is getting, yeah. you know, crowds the, are used uh, quite and, well, yeah, yeah, exactly. But the atmosphere, anyways, the atmosphere is my highest uh, is my highest uh, ranking out of all three of our money pennies, and I put it at seven, basically five, so, six, and seven. So, so my so overall Jeff's is at eighteen. 18. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Josh, well, over to uh, you. Finish us off. Yeah, nothing really uh, that I haven't really said before. I have feels Hitchcock's all over the place in this one. He wants to establish a tale of mistrust between the lead couple, but he doesn't play with the notion very long. Uh, he does convey some great world building, the sketches of intriguing characters. Uh, never develops them enough because supporting characters are just that. They support the main leads. Yeah. But Hitch is not interested in the protagonists. No. Uh, farmhouse sequence stands out. The bus sequence stands out. Everything is woven together at the end, but it's a slipshod fashion. Uh, basically, you know, we, 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 we want to root for the protagonists, so the last sequence is suspenseful, even though we don't really care. <laughs> yeah. When all yeah, is said and basically. done, they want, some, you know, they want some time again under the blanket. We, on risk of sounding voyeuristic, don't get to go under the blankets with this couple. And mm-hmm. so it feels hollow as a result. I gave act. I gave story a five. Okay. Uh, That's acting, fair. Fair enough. Newman miscast. Andrews passable. No chemistry with Newman. I liked Wolfgang Keeling as Gromick. Uh, Hans Gerd Felmy as Gerhard was was sophisticated yet menacing. 
Uh, I really liked Lila Kadrova as Bukinska. She, she was very sympathetic. Uh, the other cast members filled out really well uh, for the rest of the cast. It, it ranged from act from quality wise from act from poor to good. So that's how I feel about the performances in the film. Overall, acting because of the supporting cast was good. So I'll give it a six. Generous okay. maybe, but that's where I'm at. The highest mark I gave to uh, was atmosphere. I gave mm -hmm. it an eight. I really okay. felt the production design of East Germany felt very real. There's some impressive world building. Various arms of the East Germans, such as the military police and the Stasi, are portrayed. I think the hotel accommodations at the offices of Gerhard, for example, were a little too bourgeois. But that's nitpicking. Um, we do see the ruins of the crumbling ruins of the of the war outside of Gerhard's office. Mm -hmm. I thought that yeah. was cool. Yeah, we We've do. got dilapidated yeah. farmhouses, empty museums, not really being used. We feel this is a police state ruled by the Stasi. That's on display in the film. I felt that real. I felt the suspense real. Editing and cinematography contributed to that. So there we go. That's atmosphere. I give it an eight. Those right. are my money pennies. So your total money pennies, Josh, is 19. Jeff, again, you're at 18. And I was at 16. So despite recommending the film for our little uh, <laughs> film, <laughs> film series here, uh, I liked it less. And actually failed it on story. <laughs> uh, the, the, the question is, would you recommend it? I would recommend it to cinephiles. I would recommend it yeah, to cinephiles. people, people who are really to... keen on this environment yeah. and this era. I wouldn't recommend it to the everyday. Um, no, I think that no, it no. would be Who'd dull. Yeah, I really wouldn't. But would you watch it again, guys? Because I would watch certain parts of it. I don't think I'll watch I would certain watch parts. parts. I'm not going to watch no. the whole thing again, no. 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 Well, there it is. I mean, that, that's I the ball by numbers. But I will listen to the Herman score. <laughs> you will listen to the Herman score. And I'll listen to the Addison score. So Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You put that All on right, guys. Courage, yeah. Well, there you go. That, that's our take on Torn Curtain. And now we, can, uh, now we can move on and start thinking about our third, our non-bond. Oh, yes. Yeah. Josh is going to some clues. Yeah, I got some clues that. for you. I'm going to be the big reveal here. And uh, mm. here's some clues for you and see if you can put it together. Okay. Okay. So one of the actors uh, shares the name of a John Cleese character. That's one of your clues. Okay. Bob. Okay. Uh, one of the supporting actors appeared in a non-Bond already. Oh, okay. One of the supporting actors. Okay. One of the actors took part in the Second World War. And okay. the film is considered by some to be one of the best films that this director never made. I paraphrase, of course, but... Uh, the final, the fifth Wait a clue. The, one of the best films that this director never made. Never made? It, okay, yeah, so... Okay. The film is confused as being a film oh, by this director. Okay. But, it, right, but, right. But, but it's actually not by this director, if you know your film history okay. uh, on, that, on, on that front. Okay. Um, the final clue. The composer of the film had already won two Academy Awards before scoring this movie. What year? Are you in the same era as me and Jeff? Yeah. We're in 1963. 1963. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. Wow. 1963. Spy movie. Non-Bond. Scored by Academy Award. Two-time two Academy Award so, winner. Spy suspense thriller. Yeah. Your yep, international yep, yep. suspense thriller. Okay. So could we... The best film not done by this director... Jeff, you got any guesses? 
I had two guesses. Th- First, I said Sherrod, and then I uh, or, oh yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the Great Escape, but then I know that's not right. Okay, <laughs> what a, Max von Sydow comes to my mind. It could it, he, is he one of the guys that's in it? No. Okay, not Max von Sydow. Not Max von Sydow. Uh, <sighs> if you want another clue, this actor is in your non-Bond Scott. Um, so David Niven. He is also in a movie with Paul Newman. Famously. Wait a minute. My non-bond this year or last year? Last year. Oh, oh last what year. Was your so the, the Iger, the Iger sanction. Yes, oh, the Iger okay. sanction. Oh, so it's um, the guy from the Police Story. Is it the guy from the Police Story? What's his name? Or uh, you know the Clint naked Eastwood. guy? No. Oh, Leslie uh, Nielsen. No, 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 no. That that actor is in the, that actor is <laughs> the Naked Gun. Yes, he okay, is the Naked Jesus. Gun. Okay. Okay. Oh, George, ha- George, uh, uh, what's his name? George Kennedy. Yeah, yeah. Yes, George yeah. Kennedy. And he's also in um, the Cool Hand Luke with uh, Paul Newman. Yeah. 1963, cool, yeah. okay, 1963, George Kennedy film scored by oh. two-time Academy, gee, who would, who would have won two Academy Awards? Miklos Rocha? Would he, was, is it him? Scored by him? I'll give you a clue. Give me a clue. The composer yes. was, he won the Oscars in the previous year for a film. 62 Alex North? No. Who? Uh, Who? 1962 won the Oscar. 62 for score. Give me another score he did. Let's play this out for a second. If I give you the other score, you'll probably get it. Good. I need to. And the listener needs us to get this. Trust me. (laughs) All right. Yeah, yeah. What's the score? What's the The score? Pink Panther. Henry Mancini. Mancini. So, 1960. Is it Charade? Yes. Oh, I, I guessed right. So we are, we are going to do Charade. But, oh, cool. Yeah. So who's the director of Charade? Uh, Stanley Donan, known for his musicals. But okay. the film is, confu- right. is always confused as a Hitchcock movie. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. the actor who shares the name of a John Cleach character, Archibald Leach, oh. in A Fish Called Wanda, mm. is right. Cary Grant. Because that's Cary Grant's cool. real name, was Archibald Leach. Nice yes. one. Yeah. Nice that's one. funny. And the actor that oh, took part funny. in the Second World War... That I was mentioning, known under a very non-English sounding name, the teenaged Etta Van Heemstra performed in silent ballet dance performances that secretly raised funds for the Dutch resistance oh, against the be... Nazi occupation of the Netherlands. It's also been recently revealed of other duties she performed for the resistance. Heemstra was born in Brussels to a Dutch mother and English father as Audrey Kathleen Rustin, and after the war would be famously known as the iconic Audrey Hepburn. Cool, man. Very nice. Yep. A very fun movie. Yeah, yeah cool. we're looking, for, looking forward to that one. Yeah, uh, sure. Certainly, guys, I enjoyed, I enjoyed talking Torn Curtain with you. And um, yeah. we'll, we'll get ready for Josh's three non-bond. That'll be really cool. Yeah, boys. So I hope, everybody, uh, you enjoyed listening to this. Um, 
and that you will share your thoughts on Torn Curtain with us. If you think that we've been too hard on it, then let us know on our socials. You can reach us on Instagram, Facebook, or email if you want, bondbynumbers3 at gmail.com. And uh, after our three non-bonds, we will be back with another music episode featuring the wonderful Chris Wood, uh, Bond on Vinyl. He'll be with us to do another Bond soundtrack deep dive, and that'll be cool coming later in the summer. So uh, any closing words, guys, before we leave? We covered that film from head to toe, and I think uh, we've established ourselves as uh, great purveyors of uh, Bond and spy film criticism. Now, we did that from the word go. I mean, you know. <laughs> true, true, true. Yeah, we're, uh, we're ambitious, I know, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I would just say that this, this was, I mean, as much as, like, I'm not a huge fan of the film, and like, like we said, I'm just going to be watching a few scenes here and there. Uh, it, was, it was fun to... To watch it for a first time and and sort of uh, you know look into it, so that was always fun uh, as 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 the homework that we do for these yeah. uh, non bonds and, and film reviews. Um, but yeah, it was fun getting uh, getting back into the into the the seat and, and discuss with you guys. And yeah, so I'm looking forward to the next one. Absolutely. Oh, by the way, for those who are playing the home game, the the film that Mancini won the Oscars for in '62 was Breakfast at Tiffany's. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he must have won for song score. and for yeah score. For uh, Moon River. Yeah. Moon River, yeah, there you go. Nice one. Yes. All right. Well, everybody, be well, stay well, and we'll see you back here on Bomb by Numbers very, very soon. Later. Later. Later.